Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cinematic Underdogs. I am your host, Jordan Puga. And I'm your other host, Paul Keelan. And we're here today with Bilga Ibiri, a writer from Vulture, a writer who I've been reading for a decade or more now. So I'm super excited to have Bilga on the podcast. And first and foremost, welcome on. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Fun to be here and uh, talk about <laughs> a subject near and dear to my heart. <laughs> yeah, we are uh, tackling Ferrari, which I feel like Bilga has been the number one champion of in the trades for a good time now. And how many, I, not that you know, maybe on the top of your head, but you've had to have written like four or five pieces on this film alone. Yeah, I guess um, I'm trying to think. I've written, I think, four pieces. I was working actually on another piece that I might still do. I mean, I was kind of, it kind of became a different piece, but I actually interviewed a, a bunch of people who worked on the film, you know, about the making of the film. It was going to be kind of a big process piece about the making of the film. And then right as I was working on that, my editors wanted me to do a, a piece on the, um, the, the car crash at the end of the film. So a lot of that energy kind of got transferred over that. I still want to do the piece about sort of the, the bigger piece about the making of the film, but it's like out of theaters now. And, you know, it'll be on streaming at some point. I think I also believe uh, very strongly that this film will have kind of a long shelf life. So maybe maybe that's for the long tail of Ferrari as opposed to, you know, opening month or whatever. I mean, that makes sense. I feel like this entire decade or maybe two decades of Michael Mann's career, we've seen the long shelf life of his films, like an initial lackluster response. And then this slow momentum that just builds and builds with both Miami Vice and with Black Cat. I mean, oh, yeah. Black Cat, complete box office bomb, right? Um, oh, yeah. This is something that I remember, actually, it was right before Black Cat came out. Somebody at Universal, head of distribution or some honcho at Universal was quoted in an article about saying that um, Michael Mann films always had long tails. You know, his his thing was, it didn't really matter if these movies made all their money opening weekend or if they made all their money in theaters but like these films continue to make money for them because they're i mean obviously there's like the tv licensing deals and things like that but they come out on dvd and blu-ray and 4k and you know he does director's cuts they show in retrospectives i mean you know the studio always makes money off that kind of stuff now a film like black hat like i said this was before black hat came out um and black hat was a huge bust I mean, to the point where they actually canceled its international release. I remember like it was supposed to open in Australia and then like a week after it opened in the U.S., like its Australian release got got canceled, which is crazy because it stars like an Australian. You know, so I think there was, you know, after Black Hat really crashed and bombed, you know, I think they were reeling a little bit there. But if you look at it, I mean, Black Hat, a movie, I mean, I love Black Hat. I loved it at the time. I love it even more now. You would not think at the time, oh, yeah, yeah, Black Hat is going to be a, like a film people are still like really obsessed with <laughs> a few years from now. And, you know, the, the new 4K came out with the director's cut and, you know, everybody was going crazy over it. You know, and I've rewatched it a couple of times recently. I still think it's a great film. So Michael Mann films are are not one and done deals like they're, they're going to stick around. A movie like Manhunter. I mean, it's just kind of widely acknowledged as a classic now. Manhunter was a total bust. You know, like Manhunter didn't make any money. Manhunter, I think, almost killed his career. And yet here's a movie that now it's like even there are even people who, uh, you know, they forget about heat. Manhunter is like his, his real masterpiece, you know. So, yeah, it's an interesting world to be in. I actually was too young to know how heat was accepted or reacted to when it first came out. But I kind of assumed that it was a hit right off the bat. 
It was a hit, but um, and I, I was there. I mean, I, I remember the the marketing for Heat. I remember the run up to Heat. I remember I went to see Heat opening night, and it was packed. I think there was an expectation at the time, though, that it was going to be like really big. And it actually wasn't really big. I mean, it did well. It made money, but wasn't like an Oscar contender or anything. And the reviews were actually kind of mixed. I mean, they were positive, but not like effusive. And in fact, and I'll be honest with you, I've talked about this on other podcasts, but this was how I felt at the time, which was it's a good movie. It's not a bad movie. And it's got some great scenes, but it's like, it's too ambitious. It's too Dickensian. Why are we going into the subplot of the guy who is going to become their getaway driver and we don't even know who he is? It. Why is there the Wayne Grove subplot? Like there was always this kind of like, wait, this guy who's like out of the narrative, we're back with him and he's a serial killer and he's like killing prostitutes. Like what's going on? Like I thought this was a heist movie. And there was a lot of confusion about that. And a lot of people griped about it. And I griped about it, too. I remember, like, I, mean, I was a big fan of Last of the Mohicans. So I was very excited. And I was I was a Miami Vice kid, you know. So <laughs> so I was intrigued by the movie. And I liked it. And I, you know, I had it on Laserdisc and stuff. But it was only, like, over the years, like, revisiting it that I realized, oh, all that stuff that I thought was a flaw in this film is actually what makes this film one of the greatest movies ever made. Um, and it took a while to realize that. For me and for other people. Um, so so Heat was one of those films, like, it was successful. It wasn't not successful. But, like, I think people expected more. I mean, it was Pacino's, De Niro. Like, like it was a big deal. Um, like, people expected another, you know, like a Goodfellas, Godfather-level film. And, and instead, they got something that, that they didn't feel was that. Of course, now, you know, it absolutely is, you know, a pantheon masterpiece alongside those other movies. One of the amazing feats of his career, right, is the way he seems to always score these pretty big budgets from studios and make very accessible films but somehow eschew or like slightly detour and digress from appealing to the mainstream wishes in a way that takes time to fully i think resonate with people i think that's what we're seeing again and again with his career yeah um, I, maybe his sweet spot though is like the collateral the insider era like that late 90s when he was coalescing i guess his entertainment sensibilities which he's always an entertainer his films are always entertaining but i think what you're getting at with heat is he'll have this liberality with his material right he's a very tight director but he's also loops right there's like a very vibey atmospheric willingness to go with side characters to go on long tangents like you know miami vice and cuba that are often the best parts of the film but in the initial reaction it doesn't hit the tropes and the beats we're, we're expecting. And so our knee-jerk reactions is sort of to recoil at first, maybe. Yeah. Right. Yes. I mean, I think he's he's an interesting guy. I mean, you know, I've, I've interviewed him a bunch of times. He's a fascinating dude. And he's also, he's a real intellectual type, but he doesn't want to be seen as that. You know, like he'll sometimes, you know, sometimes when I'll interview him, He'll like offer up some observation and he'll be like, but that's that sounds pretentious. Don't don't quote me saying that. Find a way to say that in your own words. And I'm like, no, you know, you said it, you know, because uh -huh. um, because he's you know, he comes from a kind of working class family. But but he was always you know, he was always kind of an intellectual type. And I think in his early days in Hollywood, you know, he got into sort of the TV writing business and he wanted to make feature films like he wanted to make kind of serious feature dramas um, but he kind of got sucked into the tv writing world and that's a world that's very much 
about conventions, right? You know, you got TV episodes, you know, it's, it's an hour long, but you know, it's like 40, 45 minutes worth of stuff that you have to create and you got to be in, you got to be out. Everything has to be clear. You can't leave the audiences thinking like they didn't get what they were coming for, you know? Um, so I think because he came up in that world on some deep level, I think he understands how to deliver something conventional. And he has that sensibility, which also combats with this sensibility of like the artist who wants to just do something totally different and is looking for something totally different. Like possible, I've told this anecdote before, but it was it's like when I was when I was uh, in like middle school or something and getting into like serious literature, but also we were having classes, you know, English class, you know, you're learning about grammar, you're learning about properly constructed sentences and what's a run on, what's not a run on, you know, all that stuff. I remember I, I had... um. I started reading a Faulkner book, right? And it was, I think it was Intruder in the Dust, either Intruder in Dust or Sanctuary. And the opening paragraph is this huge run-on sentence. I mean, it's Faulkner, right? It's uh, like what he does, right? I remember I went to my I went to my uh, my teacher and I was like, wait, you're teaching us about run-ons, and like here's Faulkner, he won a fucking Nobel Prize, you know? <laughs> and you know, and he looks at it and he's just, do you not think that if you asked William Faulkner to to write like a perfect sentence that he wouldn't be able to do it. Like he knows how to do it. He knows what all the rules are. He can do it better than anybody. He knows how to break the rules. He knows what to do with them. He knows, he knows what to kind of do that's new and that's different. So it's like Michael Mann, I, I think of in that same vein. I mean, some of the great filmmakers are like that, right? I mean, Scorsese yeah. is like that too. But I think the other thing about Mann that is one of the sort of defining qualities of his filmmaking and he's talked about this is this experiential idea that he has he always wants to put you kind of in the perspective or point of view of the character and make make it feel like you're there and that sometimes requires eschewing the idea of like narrative information or clarity and stuff like that so that for example the opening scene of Miami Vice in the club you don't always know what's happening like it's kind of like everything's happening so fast and you're kind of a step behind the characters and and the movie but but the movie is just like taking you along on this journey of you know all right we're, we're going after this this guy with his prostitutes and whatever and we've got the you know camera set up oh wait there's a phone call and there's some other guy and it's like john hawks on a highway and he's he's like you know really distraught what's going on and now we're calling the fbi <laughs> and it's like we're on a rooftop what's going on and we've like completely abandoned this whole other story uh, that we were following, which also had some weird tangents about, you know, Colin Farrell's sex life and his fondness for mojitos. And, you know, it's like all this stuff is just like th being thrown at you. And, you know, these are things you're not supposed to do. And yet he knows how to do them. Uh, and I think Ferrari is actually similar to that. Like, I think Ferrari is in some senses a very satisfying movie and it has certain beats that are like very clearly screenwriting 101 type things you know it's like win the mille milia find a partner save your company you know it's like mm -hmm. it's like i mean people will say thick lines like this and it's like such a classic sort of setting up the stakes making it very clear what's at stake making it very clear what the character has to accomplish what his goals are i mean these are just such basic things and then he throws them out the window you know <laughs> Yeah, totally. I mean, one of the things that was fascinating for us, I think, is being a sports movie podcast, seeing sports tropes mm -hmm. sprinkled throughout, even early on when he's driving and sees Dave Portago on the street 
and then completely sort of avoids him, kind of insultingly rejects him until his racer dies tragically. And then in the most callous way, almost as shows show up on Monday, right? Yeah. So kind of a very, in a weird, dark, dark macabre way, like a sports trope. We see that a lot, that kind of like this newcomer or this bad boy that's not wanted until someone leaves the team. And gets an injury and Jamie Foxx is there and away we go, right? Exactly. Any given Sunday, which I sometimes will say the greatest Michael Mann movie Michael Mann never made because (laughs) it's like, this doesn't feel like an Oliver Stone movie. This feels like maybe Oliver Stone shot it, but like Michael Mann seized control happened. Michael Mann had nothing to do with that movie, but it's just like, it sort of lives in that same space for me, you know? It's very much a Michael Mann vibe film. I like that you brought up his background too. I didn't know until I was reading your interview with him that he was an English major. And I also also do vibe really well with this idea of him as this working class background, which you see in Thief and which everyone kind of knows if you follow him, like his Chicago and background. Mm-hmm. We did. We talked a little bit off the air. We were, we were talking about um, Jordan's dad being involved in some of his sets, but mm-hmm. he has some fun anecdotes that show just how much Michael Mann is one of the people on set. Like he understands the working class ethos of everyone. And Jordan, I don't know if you want to, you didn't share those specifically, actually. Kind of like summarize. I think I told this one on uh, Cinephile Hissy Fit as well, if you want to check out that podcast too. It's kind of summarized on there. Uh, but my dad's a set painter. He specializes in like aging, making things look old and whatnot. And like, I've, as I mentioned before, to the Michael Mann expert on the podcast, I haven't seen Miami um, Vice this entirety. So my dad tells these stories. I'm always like completely contextually lost. But for the scene of the big drug dealer's house, um, I guess it was a pain in the ass to get the reference photo that man was like inspired by like his like aha moment of what this needs to look like um and he kind of just had to come on set to see like how how the workers are actually doing it not that they're doing it wrong but like what is it with his vision that can't be completed in reality and kind of have them coach him this is why it's looking like this can you tell us kind of how his his idea of him coming in there just being on set like very hands-on just something my dad always respected it's one of those he talks about michael man away he doesn't really he has reference for him in a way I don't really hear when he speaks about sets. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly head honchos kind of showed up on set, kind of put it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like to your reference, like to really want to know the craft and the craftsmen behind it and what they're doing. And just to take that knowledge and carry it with you to the next one, right? Because uh, it ended up being like a giant obstacle. It cost him a lot of money, I guess. <laughs> it was it was kind of like a faux pas of what, what, the, what the issue was. But now he knows, I guess. So yeah, it's, it's one of those great learning moments as well. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's a the, what it's an interesting thing. Like I've talked to a number of people who worked on man's sets or on you know in post production and stuff with him, and you know a lot of people have a lot of respect for him. But I do know that he also like runs people ragged. I mean, like you'll have them working constantly, and like I think he's one of these guys. You know, he he has an idea in his head. He doesn't maybe doesn't always know exactly how to articulate it, but he wants like you know he's insistent on going until they get the thing he wants. Mm-hmm. You know, which is. A lot of the best filmmakers are like that. You know, they kind of have to be like that because it's too easy. um, It's too easy on a film set to get mediocre work, not because the people are mediocre, but it's just like there are ways of doing things that are kind of simplified and streamlined. And, you know, very often crews operate in that way. I mean, Dan's my friend, Dan Salit, who's a really good filmmaker and a really good critic, you know, had this thing he used to say, which is the director's job is sometimes to just like, keep everyone else from doing things the way they know how, because that will result in something very predictable. And it, it's tough. I mean, man is somebody though, I, I think in some ways he maybe relates better to the, the more grunt like aspects of the filmmaking experience. 
know, when I interviewed him about Ferrari, I mean, he knew the the people at the Ferrari factory by name and stuff, you know, like he, like he loves getting into that stuff. I mean, I think he's still kind of, you know, he's, he's an English major, but I think in, in some ways he has the mind of an engineer. Like he loves, he loves the mechanics of these things and these machines and things like that. I mean, he'll still talk about, I mean, he can talk about camera technology till the cows come home, you know? And I think that comes out in his film, right? Like in Black Hat, um, one of the deleted scenes is actually one of my favorite conceptually is like them, I think, bringing some ships that were carrying soy to port, right? Oh, yeah. It's in the director's cut. Yeah, it's in the director's cut, which is definitely the better cut because there's no reason that nuclear stuff should be at the very beginning of that film, which he explains very thoroughly himself. Which you understand the instinct is like the pressure from the studios to have something exciting at first, but it doesn't work. It confuses and juggles the whole thing, but not to do black hat digressions um, back on track. His sort of blue collar sensibility comes out. Like it comes out that he is really aware of the craft at a material level, right? At a ground level again and again in his films. And it does in Ferrari. Like there's this feeling in this film that he's marrying like the artists and the metal workers specifically. I mean, I'm being just literal here, right? There's this great analogy. That's maybe one of, for me, the most interesting parts of the film is this conflation of both like aesthetic beauty and perfection and technological beauty Mm -hmm. and perfection in the craftsman in a hands-on manner and the craftsman in a like a intellectual manner. And this idea of like metaphysics and physics sort of sinking or or corresponding on some sort of inherent or intrinsic level. It happens early on in the film, right? When when we're getting this. We're getting this through a priest who's speaking yeah. right, to the congregation, right? This great sequence that, that marries it all together yeah. where you have Ferrari and I don't know exactly their characters, but like, you know, his his colleagues, his henchmen checking their stopwatches in the church and they could hear the the pistol shooting. So once again, he's connecting it all together. This this culture of racing, as I think you put it, Bilga, in your in your piece as a religion, right? Um, yeah, and that's that's a you know it's it's I didn't catch it until the second time or second or third time I saw, it. but that's a specific mass that they had. I, I don't know if it was an annual thing, but but it was a mass specifically held for the metal workers. So so that so that priest wouldn't have said that every Sunday, but that specific mass, it was like. If Jesus Christ lived today, he would have been a metal worker like you. But then he makes the connection, right? I mean, he, he makes the connection for why the work that they do is so important. And that's an important connection, I think, for the film, right? Because this is, I mean, it's 1957. This is the heart of like post-war Italy's, you know, il boom, as they called it, right? Uh, you know, the, the, their economic boom, which happens, you know, after post-war reconstruction. And it starts in the mid-50s and it just like takes off you know and then you get like you know la dolce vita and all these other you know these other, i mean these films from the early 60s that kind of define sort of italian life in you know the second half of the 20th century and a lot of this like a lot of this happens in the factories a lot of this happens through the factories i mean the film isn't too overt about this especially because it's like all takes place in modena which is a big city but um but isn't like the heart of italian cultural life you know it's not rome but, you know, this is where everybody comes for, for the racing and for Ferrari. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you just get little hints of the fact that there's this whole other world outside. And Enzo, even though he's very he's very aware of what's happening, but he has this kind of tunnel vision about what he's doing. Uh, like, And he sees it almost like it's like the engine at the heart of 
post-war Italian reconstruction. Yeah, I love that. You kind of think of him as a provincial connoisseur or expert in this one specific niche, right? And the small town setting also feeds into the insularity and the conviction of his craft, right? Like he is such a monomaniacal individual and that comes off so strongly in the film, right? Where, I mean, my reading, I don't know if anyone else read this, was there just, and this might be so obvious that it's dumb to say out loud, but they were just likening Enzo Ferrari to Jesus himself, right? He's the metal worker. I had the as, same reading as you the first time. I was to say, like, Bill Gay's article was just so illuminating. As we said, like, man really does have to sit with you. And this one didn't sit with me as much until I started reading your stuff. And it was mm-hmm. like really playing again the symbolism bouncing back and forth but i was with you the first reading i had it way more focused on the one-to-one not realizing like you said the subtleties of the setting i think were completely overshot on me in my first viewing mm. and that's yeah, so why actually as i get i get excited to watch watch this one again because i had such a bad viewing of the first time i think like i think you've summed up very perfectly you come in there with ex- expectations that man is hitting those beats and then he abandons them for me, I think that first being it was maybe an unsatisfying experience. But I think as you guys if you do the work, though, uh, the intellectual work, if you will, kind of put it that way, there's so much more going on uh, that I initially given credit for. And it's, it's stuff you caught, too, but yeah. didn't let resonate in that moment. I think that is key to the way man films, you know, the way he films this stuff, the way it's all kind of coming at you. The mundane's even coming at you pretty strongly. You're just not really catching on that perception. So as I was reading your work, I was really taken aback to this movie again and just like just transported to that theater experience and those little things like I like I saw. But again, for whatever reason, where I usually investigate, I didn't. And I felt like I felt like I read yourself. I was, I was such a shit viewer on this one <laughs> as I read it. But yeah. Well, but 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 I think man. You know, he loves to put in all sorts of little details that you're not necessarily going to catch the first time. And and I think he he believes, and I don't think he's wrong about this, he believes that audiences have or viewers have kind of an intuitive grasp of, of a lot of the stuff, you know, that they catch more things than they used to, say, you know, 40 years ago or whatever. Um, And I don't think he's wrong about that. But I do think that what happens is we catch these things. We notice these things. We don't necessarily like totally process them, right? So they're there and they, they like linger in our minds and it allows the film to linger in your mind and, as well. You know, there'll, there'll be like some random little detail and you're just like, what is that about? You know, and you don't think about it necessarily all the time, but like it's there. And the next time you see the film, suddenly something clicks, you know, like the stuff with the car, with the toy car, you know, which... I didn't miss it the first time, but I didn't make the connections that I made, you know, the next time I saw it, you know, with with just like noticing that, oh, right, this is like her understanding, like, there's a boy who lives here, and this boy is playing with her dead son's cars, and Mm. suddenly, like, all these other connections happen. Heat is like that, right? I mean, there are all sorts of things in Heat that I did not really sort of grasp the first time, or even the second or third time I saw it, and so only over the years I go back to it, I'm like, oh, wait, this whole thing, you know, like... Uh. You know, like the little smile that De Niro gives in Heat as he's like on his way out, like he's he's ready to escape. He's got Amy Brenneman in the car. He's they're gonna escape to Bali, and it's just like <laughs> every man's dream, right? <laughs> you know, um, and he's just like he has this moment, and it, the whole Wayne Grow subplot, which you know, like I said, the first time I saw it, I'm like, why am I even like, why is this even a thing that I have to worry about? But like. There's that little smile that he gives right before he like takes the exit and decides to go kill Wayne Grow, right? 
you know, which is which is what winds up being his undoing. You know, that smile, it's not like I didn't see it, but it didn't really register. And then like that is such a keys you into that character and who he is in such a way. And the fact that he's also com- completely betraying his philosophy of like, always be ready to walk out on anything within 30 seconds if you see the heat around the corner. Like he betrays every single one of those, one of those dicta. But like, that's, that's the magic of Michael Mann. And that's, that's one of the reasons why, you know, his films kind of create this obsessive hold on you. You know, I have this theory, um, I've written about it in the past. I think I wrote about it, actually, I might have written about it when I wrote about Miami Vice, but like this idea of earworm cinema, right, which is, you know, the way earworms work. I mean, earworm is like the song that you keep hearing in your head and you can't drop it. And the theory behind how an earworm works is that, you know, what's happening is actually you have an incomplete memory of the song and your brain is just like playing it over and over trying to complete it. And I have a theory that certain films, because they're missing a certain element or sometimes intentionally, which is like the director has removed a certain element or the screenwriter has removed a certain element that you might ordinarily get, the film becomes something you obsess about. And my classic example of this is The Shining, right? Which is... (laughs) horror movie, supernatural, blah, blah, blah. I mean, great movie, obviously, but it's, it's got all the it's got all the things you expect in a horror movie, but doesn't explain anything about who these fucking ghosts are or what's <laughs> happening. Like, it does not give you the explanation of what's going on. It gives you little hints uh-huh. so that by the end of the movie, you're like, on some level, completely dissatisfied because you're just like, wait, that's it? It's over? You know, two and a half hours of this? And of course can't stop thinking about it and you know it goes from being like what people thought was an embarrassing disaster at the time to being like one of the greatest movies of all time because nobody can let it go you know it's the shining so so i think man is kind of working in that vein as well like because there are all these like weird little elements and he doesn't necessarily complete all these thoughts but he inserts all these things in there and they're all in there you kind of just find yourself or we find ourselves just going back to them over and over and over again yeah and another fascinating thing about Ferrari, right is that It was written by Troy Kennedy Martin, right? And he passed away over a decade ago. And yet it feels like such a Michael Mann film, right? It feels like it has a reflexive quality on his place as an auteur nearing the end of his, not the very end, right? But but nearing, approaching the end of his artistic career. It's in the twilight phase, at least, that feeling, right? Like a sort of sunset-esque sensibility to it and as i've read and learned from some of your pieces right with the crash sequence right where he meets locals and adds things to the film that a lot of this is michael mann crafting and moving around and that's always a fascinating thing to me right is we naturally ascribe so much to the director and to the auteur as we probably should, but this is also based on a screenplay by someone for a long time it's also been germinating right for 30 years this film has been talked about since I think between last the last of the Mohawkins and Heat, right? It was yeah. uh, in an interview at some point where he wanted to make this with De Niro before he made Heat. Oh, I, I never heard about the De Niro thing. That would have been interesting. Actually, that would have been great. Um, I, uh, yeah, no, I, I mean, he, he's been wanting to make it since the, the mid 90s, I think. And it's interesting because Troy Kennedy Martin has the sole screenplay credit, and I gather they were they were friends. But you know, when when I do talk to to Man about it, he will offer up all these things that that he added to the film, which I'm like, that's a lot. <laughs> like like the whole thing about Piero Ferrari, the little boy, he added all that stuff because he said, and I mean, when I interviewed him, he said, you know, you know, I added the Piero stuff and I made it kind of about how Piero um, 
what will happen to him, right? And he actually said, and then I went into every scene and kind of analyzed the scene and sort of from that perspective of like, how does this scene relate to what's going to happen to Piero? And like, that's, I mean, that's like the engine of the movie uh, mm. in a way. I and mean, you don't necessarily realize it until the end, but but that's such an interesting way to kind of go back and revise and, and, and change every scene in the movie and sort of, I'm sure it helped them decide like what other scenes to leave out and what to cut and stuff like that. So I'd be fascinated to read Troy Kennedy Martin's original or an earlier draft to see how, how it was different because it, it's entirely possible. And Troy Kennedy Martin was written some great films. I mean, he wrote The Italian Job, which is not a conventional movie in many ways either. Mm. So it's not like he would have necessarily written something that was very conventional, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was a much more conventional sort of Hollywoody script, you know. It feels like it has the man touch, right? The pacing, the details of the setting, right? A lot of this movie that I loved, right, was like there's a scene in the middle where they're all having lunch and they have the, the sparkling water on the table and the bowls of pasta. Yeah. And it's just like so, is it 1954 this takes place? I know it's in the 50s. I forget the exact year, right? 57, yeah. 57, thank you. It just feels of that time and it feels provincial, right? It feels oh, yeah. like a small town i mean not that i lived in 1957 or have been to small town italy but it feels authentic to me right yeah and it would have been easy for him you know it's a thing about michael mann and those of us who are like big fans of his films i think this is something we have to kind of be aware of is and we are aware of it i mean like his films can be such a fetish object right because of sort of the things that he puts in them that that are common to the to them i mean everything from like the sort of bluesy electronica and stuff like that it would have been very easy for him to put that stuff in this movie. He could have, you know, like, and it doesn't have a lot of that stuff. I mean, it has a lot of Michael Mann stuff and very personal movie, I think. But, you know, it's like nobody says time is luck, <laughs> you know, like there aren't the sort of classic Michael Mann lines. I mean, the, the only one uh, that's kind of a, a line that shows up in his other movies is, um, you know, fuck it, we both die, which in Miami Vice, you have the, the skinhead saying, fuck it, we all go, you know, like, but that's such a common thing from in movies anyway. But, um, but you know, like, he keeps it very sort of, you know, focused on like, what is happening at this moment in time in this particular place. And the music is very authentic to that, you know. Um, so I think that's, I think it's important to kind of note that, like, he's, he's working against some of the earlier impulses. Like it would have been very easy for him to just kind of expand this thing. I mean, Black Hat is like that, right? Like you were going to, you started mentioning the, the, the soy boat <laughs> in Black Hat. Maybe my favorite moment in the director's cut too, because it's such a Michael Mann moment. It's like, who are these people? Why do we care about them? It's like, this is a boat like trying to dock in the port of Amsterdam and it can't. It's been denied entry because... The price of soy has gone up since it went out, you know, to sea. And now it doesn't have the proper insurance because the value of its cargo has shot up. And it's just like, who puts that in a movie? <laughs> you know, <laughs> It would be very easy for Michael Mann to like add stuff like that to Ferrari. I mean, there's so much go- swirling around Ferrari and car racing in the 50s. And Italy. I mean, you know, there's so much stuff he could have put in, but he doesn't um, because he wants to kind of keep that sort of, you know, focus on these people in this particular moment in time and place. That's what really gives you this macro understanding of the micro, of the little things that are going on and how it's affecting this whole organism. Jumping back to Ferrari, though, right? One of the things I found really interesting was there's this introduction to religion very early on that's just kind of like established and and left, right? There's not much else with religion throughout. But he has this crucial interaction with Piero, his son. 
midway through the film where he tells his son that there's some sort of inherent symmetry or there's a utility that usually corresponds to beauty, right? Mm -hmm. And I found that also then going back into the theological. This, there's this aesthetic idea throughout the film that form has an innateness or this like ideal objective perfection that can be achieved. And I found that as I thought more and more about this film as maybe my most intriguing enigma about the film, because I was always wondering as I was watching it and as I reflected on it, what is Ferrari's primary objective, right? And they tap, they tap into this in the film really well. They, they, they talk about how he doesn't race to sell cars. He sells cars to race, right? So you get that hierarchy, right? He values the art of racing or the competitive nature of racing over commerce, over something mercenary. But I was going deeper and I was thinking, but then does he race to then progress his engineering? And then is his engineering this form of aesthetics? And is this aesthetics this sort of divine connection or this, this relationship to the divine, right? And that's what I really loved about the film as I thought more about it. But it never, not that it didn't manifest, that's probably for the best, but it left me still searching for like little clues throughout it of like, mm. what is Ferrari's unyielding motive? And what's his higher principle? Because it's almost like he has to have one. Otherwise, he does come off in a way that I think validates some of the think pieces that I didn't love about him as this like merciless, unempathetic mm soulless capitalist which mm. i mean is extremely reductive and there's there's a way to get in that dialectic it's there the movie does not shy away from the fact that he values his his art and his cars over human life to a large degree right the main sports motivational sequence where he as at a table right and there's that long close-up on driver mm -hmm. basically telling him you need to risk your lives for this if you truly like believe in the vision of ferrari and are going to be one of my drivers. He dismisses a death right in front of him. And then later, there is some level of reticent sorrow that is shown at the crash site after the, you know, which we'll get, I think, deeper into, but the major crash that is shocking and horrible and that comes at the end of the film. And there's a quiet reflexivity and there's a lot of backstory about the fact that he had two friends who died and he kind of, at that point, the languages he built a wall, right? This idea of a psychological barrier. I, I found all of these things in this crazy nexus. It is very hard to untangle. And that's maybe what I love so much about it is like the impossible task of trying to untangle a, a coherent morality or a coherent worldview from him. Yet it's all there as well. Well, I think he, I, I think man loves the unreconciled nature of of the film i mean he's he talked about this when i interviewed him this idea of like that we hold all these contradictions in our lives and conventional movies and shows sort of seek to reconcile these you know these characters always have to have some sort of reconciliation or closure or whatever and this movie doesn't offer that and there is the sense throughout that enzo has built a wall around himself but he doesn't not care. I mean, because because you'll also see, for example, when he's with his wife, with Laura, Laura is very ruthless and calculating with stuff mm -hmm. like payments to the, the girlfriend of the driver that died and stuff like that. You know, she's very um, like they have a whole scene where 
and he's like, we got to give her money. And, and she's like, you know, why were you fucking her? Like, were, were you fucking mm-hmm. her mom? Like that whole conversation, very cruel conversation. Cause they're talking about the driver who just died. Right. This is the earlier uh, incident. So like outside Enzo doesn't care. Right. Mm-hmm. Or seems not to care or seems to have a wall around himself when he's inside, when he's talking to Lara, he's the one trying to make the case. Right. And then Laura, yes, she might not care, but then we see just how completely destroyed she was by her own child's death. So, so she's built a wall around herself too. And so she's kind of, you know, you know, the, the ruthless penny pincher in the company and sort of, but she's also playing a part, right? I mean, she's also built a kind of wall, like all these things go. And this is true. I mean, this is, this is so much more accurate, I think, to the way humans live their lives than uh-huh. what we tend to see in movies. And one of the things that movies, you know, I mean, look, we love movies, right? <laughs> we're, we're all big fans of movies here. But one of the things that's always frustrating about films is that, you know, the characters in them, even the flawed characters in these movies are sometimes so hard to live up to those ideals. Uh-huh. Like they never really give you models for existing through life. I mean, they do and they don't. That's not what we're watching them for anyway. But it is sometimes really refreshing to see a character who's just like, he's one way here, he's one way there. And it's the same person, right? Movies often like are kind of, and screenplays often are kind of focused on making character traits very consistent, but people's character traits aren't consistent, you know? Uh, and and that's something that I, I, I really appreciate about this film. Now there's a way to do that and it's a mess and you, like the f- film can be confusing and it might not be at all enjoyable. I think Ferrari does this in a way that's not confusing. And um, it makes you think and it makes you kind of wonder and, you know, there might be certain elements in the film that don't feel resolved, but I think that's kind of by design. At the same time, like you said, you know, there is that scene where he's like, when things work better, they're more pleasing to the eye. True, but funny thing about Ferrari cars, Ferrari racing cars, I mean, they only work better (laughs) when they're racing. Like, um, I mean, Man talked about this in the interview, and this is kind of notorious at the time, is that like, you know, people who bought Ferrari cars for just like driving around like in their ordinary lives, these things just broke down because they weren't designed to be driven at normal speeds. And Ferrari cars also kind of notorious for not, they couldn't take turns the way other cars could and stuff like that. I mean, they had their flaws. In fact, there's, you know, that there's that scene with Patrick Dempsey, there's a couple of scenes with Patrick Dempsey, but the one that was with, with the ashtray, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. when he's asking for an ashtray. And they're like, what do you want an ashtray? He was like, well, I smoke. <laughs> what do you uh-huh. think? You know, like you need an ashtray. Uh, and then, but there's that other scene where he's like, hey, you know, these other cars, they have these things called brakes, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> all these things. So Ferrari is, yes, I mean, the cars are beautiful, but, you know, they don't always work perfectly. In fact, we see them not work several times in the movie with quite disastrous consequence. We're seeing Ferrari as resistant to pragmatism mm-hmm. in a transactional way. And oddly enough, I was thinking, I saw this, I think, in the same week as I saw Dream Scenario. And there's a lot of that movie between Nick Cage and his wife. And he's in a viral incident. And his wife's begging him to get ahead of it. And there, I just think there's a really funny parallel between the two there. It's funny because they're both principled. In Dream Scenario, Nick Cage is uh, this academic who, at least in the beginning of the film, and throughout almost the entire film, has these high principles about, you know, his work, he's into evolutionary biology. He wants to write this book. They try to get him to like do ads, I think, for Burger King in the midway point. He refuses to, right? Turns down money. And then he kind of retracts when he realizes that it would have been more pragmatic, right? 
But I, I think they're of the same temperament and they're of the same, I think, sanctimonious vanity. But I think that's also a good thing. I don't want to say that with negative connotations only. Sure. But I think they have this like religious fervor that comes with people who are obsessed with excellence and don't want to deal with any of the transactional pragmatic nonsense, which you then you understand uh, Laura's role and her absolute necessity and exigency in the marriage. And even if it's a very estranged marriage for show, but in the professional relationship, right? And as cruel as she may be, right? They also need to get ahead of this tragedy to rewrite the narrative, right? And she's talking in that scene or insinuating bribing these, the news, the media as well to treat them favorably, to get ahead of this. Now I'm seeing this as a very consistent trait in Ferrari and in Enzo, almost throughout, like his inability to really take a stance even on Piero, like on the name. There's a passivity to him that is might be bizarre for many because he's also such a headstrong leader. Mm-hmm. But he's only a headstrong leader when it comes to his true project, which is engineering like the greatest car, which is my read. Is that like racing he loves. And I actually want to throw this to everyone, maybe Jordan too. Like, do you think that he cares more about competition in racing or do you think he cares more about engineering? I think that's such an interesting friction that's kind of explored and kind of unexplored uh, in this. I think off your question, I feel like the movie does an interesting job to, at least in my reading, kind of like he says he's about racing, but a lot of racing movies kind of have that cliche. This is one of the ways where I think it does a good job of kind of saying the beast and going away from it. Like the cliche, like attachment to the race that lost you, why you're not behind the wheel anymore to kind of put it that way. Um, that's sprinkled in here, right? But it's definitely not like the driving force of why I'm building now, right? Kind of like David Harbour's character in Gran Turismo, why he's why why he works behind the scenes, right? That that's definitely like absent from from this one. So for for your question, I do think it's more of the mechanical side, at least the way we're getting it from man. The other parts are kind of sprinkled in there, but I think it's on the way weirdly like that's one of the ways it works as the anti-sports trope too, mm-hmm. right? Kind of defying the audience that that closure of this is the exigence behind behind why I don't want to be the racer anymore. Um, and I was even playing with that in my head, actually, when I was watching it, like the way he treats the racers too, like his, like, you know, he puts up like the wall, right? Because it does kind of serve as like a spark of comedy in there. It serves to appall. But I, I was kind of thinking of like, what is his connection to racing? And is it jealousy that the drivers are still able to do it? But that, even that's kind of like a mm-hmm. me going in with the sports trope. I mean, the race, the Millie Miglia mm-hmm. is such an, uh, both an exhilarating sports sequence, right? I love seeing all the settings, but also at the end, it's so anticlimactic, which is a weird thing to say because it has one of the biggest shocks in cinema I've seen in the last decade. <laughs> but for the that. race itself, you're like expecting this rousing, feel-good ending, right? They're they're really setting you up and it undercuts that. It couldn't undercut that any stronger. They even show the end where he wins and we already know, actually, if you're following closely, and man doesn't really loudly t- convey this, but their competitors at Maserati, right, they're all out of the race. And one of them gets picked up on the side of the road, basically, which is a really interesting act of, like, charity and goodwill that I would, almost didn't expect to see. Uh-huh. But <laughs> that kind of, like, baffled me in the film. Like, are they really slowing down to pick up their their rival? And that's the guy that wins the race. Like, yeah. like that's actually Dempsey's character who who slows who down to pick that guy, pick Dara oh. up, and and he, you know, he's the one who wins the race. I got into this a little bit in the piece I wrote about um, the sort of the the ending of the film, but 
it is, and you're absolutely right. I mean, it is setting up the sports underdog trope. I mean, all throughout the film, Deportago is like clearly like he's the underdog, so much so that they actually twist history a little bit. You know, because Deportago shows up at the train station and, you know, everybody's excited about Berra and nobody knows who Deportago is and he introduces himself to Ferrari and Ferrari drives off. Deportago was like one of the most famous men in the world at the time. Like, <laughs> like they're cheating there. Like he uh-huh. was a huge, huge. And, and man said this when I interviewed him, when he's talking about Lex and when I was growing up, Miles Davis was the coolest guy in the world. Actually, the only other person that could match him was Deportago. Like Deportago is like, an international celebrity. Uh, but the film, because of the way it's setting things up, I think sort of underplays that and makes it seem like he's just some, you know, <laughs> some hick that like walked off the train, you know? And even, I mean, he's a nobleman, but I said at one point somebody calls him Marquis, you know, and, and when Enzo actually talks to him later, he says, oh, you know, you, you, you just won a race in one of my cars. And I um, can't remember if it was Formula One or what, something like that, but, but he just won like some major race in one of his cars. So people know who Deportago is or people knew who Deportago was at the time. But the film is setting him up as this like the underdog, right? You know, all the touchstones, like there's even like, they, they never explain what that race is. There's like that one little race that we see in the middle that he loses. <laughs> Nobody sets that race up. It's just like they cut to it. We see him lose and like, you know, Enzo's really mad at everybody. Yeah. Like, what race was this? Um, but like, again, it's been set up in such a way. He's like, he went to the race, he fucked up and he's going to lose his, you know, he's going to lose his car. And then, you know, he, he asks for, for another shot. Every touchstone of the underdog movie is here. Right. So you're waiting and it's like, and then the race happens and it's like, we've been building up to this race. I mean, it takes up the last third of the movie. And then his, his, his car flies off the road and he's cut in half. And it's like, this race is over. Right? And it's like, quick shot of the, the guy who did win. It's crazy. And I think that's actually another thing that the film does. Some people criticize this and, and feels like a criticism at first and until you realize why they're doing it. We have these other racers, these other Ferrari racers. Some of them are played by pretty well-known actors, you know, Jack O'Connell and Patrick Dempsey. And they, they all get their little moments. And they, these are like big figures at the time. The film really kind of doesn't give us a lot of time with them. And I don't know if that if the script had more, if they shot more. I would not be surprised if one day we see a director's cut with more stuff with, with those mm-hmm. guys. But the film doesn't really get too far into their lives. And I think, again, I think it's doing it because it wants to make sure we're focused on Deportado, right? Because if, if we yeah. got more of those racers and we sort of saw them as almost equivalent characters and in the amount of cinematic space they took up, Deportago's death wouldn't be nearly as shocking. Like, he's the guy. He is the guy the movie is focusing on. This is the dude. Boom, he's dead. And I think that's, like, structurally a thing man is doing that that you don't realize it because it's there It's there to give you a shock. It's there to kind of pull the rug out from under your feet. Yeah. Right? He even so, kind of, like, I guess tipped his hat a little bit, and I didn't really catch it with, the like, the letter-writing scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, as Because it, it's kind of, like, you know, built up in there with them basically writing like soldiers kind of like going into battle which i didn't catch that as as uh poignantly as it would play out into that into that role yeah yeah, yeah. it's it's like the it's like the thin red line thing right where we're, we're like wait we thought this was this isn't the other character like i'm like oh it's not deportagos yeah like, it's this other guy's letter you know and it's like suddenly they kind of take on the, the quality of like an oversoul like everybody is part of this this great sort of being 
like not the kinds of things they tell you to do in film school. Like these are like, sure. he's breaking so many like screenwriting rules here, but I think ultimately it works really well. I think one of the savviest choices too was to cast Dempsey. I mean, no, Dempsey loves racing, right? And he's affiliated with it. Mm-hmm. He, he has tons of cards. I know he's in competitive racing and all that. So he probably just wanted to be on set for like selfish reasons anyways. He's been uh, wanting to make a racing movie for a long time. So. Forever. And uh, Jack O'Connell too, right? Familiar enough face, right? And sometimes you expect more from familiar faces. And sometimes they're there to serve exactly that purpose. Like the director knows these characters are not going to be fully fleshed out, but they are worthy enough to warrant notice of the audience. So I need to cast someone who's going to have that gravitas, right? I mean, Oppenheimer does that throughout a lot. And it often gives them like all little nuggets have their one moment in the film, right? I mean, there's endless debate of who is like the best cameo in Oppenheimer. Sure. But uh-huh. but I think in, in, in their own right, those two actors kind of serve this very crucial function in the film. They can't overshadow the Bertago in any way. Otherwise, they ruin that that emotional connection to him, the resounding poignance and, and pathos of the crash. But they also have to be big enough that we understand that like they won the race right in terms of Dempsey and mm-hmm. that they're the other key racers. He also had to round out his his team. So jumping back real quick too, Jordan brought up Gran Turismo. And I wanted to touch upon that because I do think this is an interesting one-two pair. These films have such an interesting juxtaposition mm-hmm. because they both in the same year come out and they both have very critical scenes of not only racers dying in competitive setting, but they have spectators yeah. being killed in these settings, which then led me down the rabbit hole, which had led most viewers down of learning about, unless you already know about this, the Le Mans tragedy that killed like 80 plus people. Um, I've heard there's footage out there. I don't care to see it, but I, I think I even read that man watched it in inspiration, right? And you wrote a long piece, Bilga, about that scene and about the amount of research and meticulous like attention to detail that went into that scene so uh, first i want to ask you about that and then i also after that want to bring jordan and everyone in about this relationship between gran turismo and ferrari because gran turismo is this like pop confection or i should have said popcorn confection it's mainstream sports cinema and i couldn't believe how entertaining and feel good it was it was like a perfect late august movie at the tail end of summer Supremely underrated for what it was doing, in my opinion, but also by the numbers, formulaic. It often like shoehorned in stuff in in a very manipulative way. It announced every emotion to you. Yeah. Right. Mm. But it was a winsome movie. It was a feel good and riveting film. If you like those sort of classic sports movies, which we love. Mm. And then there's this movie, which is, as we've said so many times, sort of the antithesis of that in ways, right? The more sober, intellectual, adult version of it. Mm-hmm. But they also kind of come around the same tragedy in the third act that really grounds yeah. each movie, but does such different things. Right? Gran Turismo uses it as motivation and turns it into this inspirational pivot, which actually wasn't true in real life either. That was a big fabrication that there was some interesting think pieces on saying they really turned a real life tragedy into motivational fodder for a screenplay. Like people were kind of upset about that. Mm. Um, 
And here, the tragedy then turns the film on its head and it sort of enters into some of its other themes about legacy and lineage. So um, now I probably broached too many subjects <laughs> to pare down too easily, right? But I'll start with Bill. I want to kind of get into first that crash scene. So I, I have seen the, the, the Le Mans crash, which was captured by a BBC uh, cameraman. It's uh, incredibly disturbing. I mean, the version you see on YouTube is, is grainy old footage and, and you can't really make it out. But also the other thing is it's, it's shocking, but your shock is a little delayed because you can't tell at first what's happening because it happens so fast. Mm. Um, I mean, it's basically, you know, the engine of this car just cuts through spectators and it killed 83 people. And it's horrible. It happens so quickly that you watch it and like a second later, two seconds later, you're like, oh my God, those are people. Like, it's that shocking. And and man, you know, man definitely referenced it. In Ferrari, they actually slow it down so yeah. that you can really see what's happening. The thing that they did, you know, and I think Man talked about how they wanted the camera to be, the camera pans a little bit, but it's like a very simple shot. I think he used the term indexical, like, like it's just, it's just recording. It's not, he's not trying to get fancy, fancy with it. He's not trying to cut around it. Um, he just wants to show what's happening um, because that's the most horrible thing you can show. But they researched this crash a ton. I mean, man does a ton of research. He, he, He's always really into the technical details, but sometimes he's into the technical details so that he can take liberties with them later. But, you know, they went into all the, the police reports. I mean, this thing was investigated for several years. There was a you know court case. There was tons of eyewitness, you know, interviews and things like that. One thing they discovered was apparently when the car flew off the road, there was all this sand on the sides of the roads or, or dirt. And it kicked up so much sand that a lot of the eyewitnesses didn't actually see the car going through the people. They saw the car go up. They saw just like a burst of sand. And then they obviously mm. they know where the car wound up. So they had like all these records of like where the car went off the road. They know that it hit the telegraph pole or the telephone pole because it cut off communications so that nobody knew what had happened for a couple hours because there was no phone. And also, I think that when it hits the telephone pole, I think that's actually when the Portago gets cut in half. Mm. Um, so it hits that, bounces off, goes into the crowd, and they know where it landed. So they don't actually know. I mean, not that what, what were people going to say? Like, they don't actually know how it kind of went through. So they kind of have yeah. to use the Le Mans thing as a way of looking at how something like this happens. You know, obviously, I mean, he could have kicked up a ton of dust and not shown us anything, but he wants to show it to us because he wants he wants it to hit that this thing is so tragic. And it's funny, not funny, but like it's interesting hearing sometimes people criticize the movie and man. Not that I've read a ton of these criticisms, but all occasionally something like this comes across my transom. Somebody's like, this man was a murderer. How could you make this? I'm like, the film is going out of its way to show you what, what the consequences of what he did. Uh. It's like. The film could have downplayed this. It could have been more tasteful with how it shows it. It just certainly didn't need to show us Deportago cut in half. I mean, there's so many things the film could have done to underplay this and to underplay Enzo's role in it. It's like when people respond to this, like, you know, it, I don't know. It, it, hap it happened with Oppenheimer, too. The people oh. are, like, responding to, like, oh, my God, you know, why didn't this? And it's like, the film is showing you the thing. <laughs> the reason you're so upset is because the film showed you the thing, you know? But again, I think it speaks to the, the to this whole idea that that man has of like he wants you to live in the contradictions. He he doesn't want to let Enzo off the hook. He also recognizes that it probably wasn't actually Enzo's fault that this happened, though he absolutely played a part in like driving these people to want to succeed. I mean, we see him 
after Maserati is out of the race, they say, should we, you know, should we tell these guys to like kind of slow, pull back a little because mm-hmm. like we won, totally. all our racers are here. Our whole team's going to win. Like, should we tell him to kind of pull back? And he's just like, no, they're racers, you know? And it's like, in some ways he's, he can't break free of that mindset. He also knows, understands that these racers probably aren't going to break free of that mindset. At the same time, though, if he told them to pull back, they probably would. And he doesn't. You know, he's, I mean, he's still exhorting them after Maserati is off the table. There is a scene of him telling each of them to just keep going. And he, and he, he tells Dempsey's characters, um, Tarufi, to like keep going. Otherwise, your, your wife's never going to talk to you. Right. And he, mm-hmm. he tells each of them the same, like in the same way that he does at the beginning of the race, he's still telling them, he's still pushing all their little emotional buttons to get them to drive faster. You know, and he tells Deportago, you need new tires. And Deportago is like, no, 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 I can't. I got to go. And he's like, will it get me to Brescia? Will it get me to Brescia? That's the end point of the, of the race. And all this stuff happens like 20 miles before Brescia. Like it's not that far from the, from the end. And he doesn't answer him. I mean, but it's like, it's almost like Deportago gets in the car and goes off before Enzo has a chance to answer, but he doesn't answer him. And I love the little expression on Driver's face in that moment. If you get a chance to see the film again, just like watch that little moment, because he's just like, he's got his hands up and he doesn't know what to say. And he just seems completely helpless. Again, the film is not letting him off the hook by any means. I think it's going out of its way to sort of force us to, to live in this kind of unreconciled space at the end. So yeah, I went off on a tangent there at the end, but I think I answered part of your question. That scene where they have the pit stop, right? When you're thinking backwards after seeing the crash, right? is so pivotal because it's also tapping into this idea of, are we competing against someone else or are we competing against ourselves, right? And it comes down to the fact that I think he says something along the lines of, my racers are racers. Like it has an existential air Mm -hmm. to this quote, right? Like this is what they do. They are not going to just phone it in. And then it takes on tragic dimensions afterwards, right? Because what is no longer, quote unquote, competitive ends up being deadly. But if you then understand it through the context of competitiveness doesn't even mean the same as their internal competitiveness. So therefore, it wasn't for naught or wasn't a moot enterprise of, you know, seeking the best time or pushing their cars to see what was possible, right? To pursue excellence. Yeah. which is, a, I think, a consistent motif throughout the film. That also sort of, it gives it a, a redemptive quality without being too saccharine or cloying in any way. And also, I think what's so shocking about The Crash 2 is that they do show the object on the road, and so that foreshadows it to a degree. Yeah. But it happens so abruptly, and it is so both fast, and then they do slow motion, right? And so... I think you wrote matter of fact. I think that was your d- description of it, right? There's something like very unflinching about the camera's gaze of it all. Yeah. It's something that you don't see much, right? Gran Turismo does not do that at all. It's the opposite of this. And it's a sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't moment when you're covering real life. Because if you depict this horrible thing, you can be condemned for, I guess, exploiting trauma. Yeah for entertainment. And if you don't depict it, you are avoiding the realities mm-hmm. of the consequences of this world and of this character. And so it's almost a lose, like lose or win-win. It depends on how you're going to engage with it mm. scenario. 
Jordan, what did you think about it in comparison to Gran Turismo? Yeah, I think, well, I'm going to reference you here, Vilga. I like how you put in your article that, you know, man was real, obviously really into the cars behind the scenes. And he points out like they're savage. He quote says they can kill you in a heartbeat. They have more power than you can handle. Uh, they have more power than the brakes can handle. And one tiny thing goes wrong, it, you know, results in catastrophe. And I feel like that was more present in Gran Turismo. Other than that last part, I feel like that was the one thing that really sat between those two is Gran Turismo did such a good job of making me just be scared of the cars. Quite frankly, you're scared of these kids who are video gamers getting in. You're scared of what the cars can do, but you're also on board for them and buying the training that they're becoming better drivers, which I think just leads to the impact of that crash. Like you said, it being, for lack of a better word, just part of the sport, actually, right? It is, it is part of that sport and it has it being in there. Uh, but I thought Gran Turismo really made you respect the cars more. Uh, for Ferrari, really care more about the rivalry, the reasoning, like you said, the reason behind why we want the best time, why we want to be the best. Uh, whereas Gran Turismo really, because again, it's a training movie, a lot of training montage, really preparing you of what it takes to be the best. And I think that that process, it really, in some ways makes those like, obviously they're not graphic crashes in uh, Gran Turismo, but it really makes those land again, because they are character development moments, but it's so essential to like what that movie's doing just as what you're on board for. And I think it does it in a pretty fun, convincing way. I'm say fun, but convincing way. Again, mm -hmm. like I said, taking that something grisly and scary and really like you're, you want to see him win the last one. With Ferrari, I don't think I was really scared of the cars until I see him like bust out the old school goggles in the rain. And then we really get like, that was one of the, the best part of the movie is the actual racing. That shit was scary. But that's what you really start to respect, right? That's not really, that's kind of absent, I thought, in this movie. He's this Goliath, right? The name speaks for itself. The racing. There's a there's a there's a level of leaning into you know this authority that the character and brand brings. I, I felt like I was taking for granted comparing these two movies until you get to that race, like I said, where we're really in the greediness of feeling like racing back in the in the day was just a whole nother animal, which, which I was really appreciative of. But in terms of the crash, I again like the idea that we get the family and their little picnic just moments before. I felt like people could say that was overkill, but it was so essential. To like again uniting like we mentioned earlier the setting the goal of the race what is the track right is like this is this living organism this isn't racing as we know it today track shut down everything like that again i like the way it's it's unspoken it's just really detailed and hits you like as you said man wants you to see it he doesn't want to explain it to you yeah. right and gran turismo was all about explaining it to you and you're there for it um i'm buying the explanation is my point in gran turismo as a viewer i'm buying it but with Ferrari, it's that shock of the crash, the subtleties, like you said, the slow-mo, and the fact that it's really like the end of the movie, right? It really speeds up where we're getting into the politics of we got to bribe off journals. That, that's how it ends. But that ending really surmises uh, Penelope's character very well in terms of the beats it hits. But going back to the crash, it's like the perfect amount of energy and whimper, right, if you will, for this movie. And I will say as a viewer, the first time I was almost like let off the hook. I'm like, that's where we're going to end it. I felt very weird walking out of the theater. Yeah. But as we have this discussion, I think it's it's so suiting for what he's doing with this movie and it being, you know, the moment, in the, the big moment in the symphony, if you will. I think it lands for me. I haven't seen it second time, but it's one of those ones that sticks with me and I think helps me rethink my feelings about that movie, actually. And like you said, the larger picture than it being just about a crash and more into, it makes me rethink Adam, uh, Adam Driver's character as, like, as a villain. Right, I'd like the way you point out in the in, the, in your um, in your review, like Adam Driver is not the villain in this movie, and I feel like at that point I'm actually rethinking of that. I feel like most of the movie, in my first viewing, I'm kind of thinking he is, if you want to put it that way, the villain, the antagonist, and not. But I think in that crash, and the way you're looking back and make those connections to his dead son through 
was really, like you said, just great mise-en-scene pretty much. That is the connection that I think drives it back. So I do, I think the, the crashes, it works so well in this movie. And it's, it's an essential part. And I think it really needs to be that, that brutal, uh, if you want to put it that way, especially because the first crash is kind of, again, it's one of those ones where you're supposed to respect the vehicle, but it just really builds up Adam Driver's callousness, right? Yeah. We get that good reaction. Like you said, it kind of gives us a little underdog story. This crash at the end, like yeah, it has that big philosophical implications. It's it's what this movie needed with the pacing of the movie. This is it's just what this thing it needs that bump. And then the way it kind of goes back into like solemnness, like you said, it's very unsettling. It doesn't hit all the beats, but in that kind of like deconstructed, like if you look at it like a deconstructed like a comic, it's almost perfect to end it that way. Well, that was the thing that um when I when I did the blank check podcast about Ferrari, you know, Griffin um had this interesting comment because he's like when he saw the movie. And then the crash happened at the end. He was like, wait, is there like a whole other hour of this movie left? Because it doesn't feel like something that's going to happen at the end, right? It feels yeah. like something that's going to set up a whole new act of just like, you know, now we're going to get a yeah, trial, yeah. we're going to get the investigation, we're going to get all the repercussions. But the movie basically ends, right? And, and that's such a kind of, like I've often, you know, I'm, I'm somebody who cries a lot during movies. It just, you know, I'll, I'll fess up to it. Lots of movies, even bad ones that manage to make me cry. But I often think, like, I would love for someone to make one of those movies. Because, you know, like, people like me who cry a lot during movies, we're always very grateful that it's, like, happening in the dark. And then usually, like, it's never the final scene that's, like, really, uh, really sad. It's, like, there's usually some other stuff later and there's some hope. And then there's, like, bring you end up. credits and, you know, it's still dark. You know, it's not. <laughs> but I always thought it'd be really, really funny, but, like, interesting for, like, somebody with, with, you know a bold filmmaker to one day make a film that like has like a really big cry moment and then just end the movie right there like no end credits just lights go up and everybody in the audience is just like in tears you know and just like really embarrassed or whatever i mean man doesn't do that here but it is kind of like that sort of hits you with the thing that you think is going to lead to all this other stuff and i that's basically the end of the movie you know like fuck mm. you get out of the theater show's <laughs> over you know and i think that's a really Again, I think it's a, it's a really interesting way of kind of forcing you to live with the contradictions and just sure. the discomfort of of what you've just seen. I mean, he does he does provide. There's, a, I mean, the big cry moment for me is actually you know Penelope Cruz's you know final speech. Mm -hmm. um, but um, it's like the the film almost de-escalates from there because you think it's going to escalate, but it doesn't. It actually de-escalates, and you know when Enzo and Lara talk, it's very quiet. It's not. It's not like they've had shouting matches throughout the movie and it suddenly it's like becomes like this incredibly intimate scene. But again, because of the way the crash is depicted and because of the way he depicts it, and, you know, like you said, that family that he cuts away to, they have to be there. I mean, obviously, you know, he, he found them in his research and decided to add them because he's like, this is too good a story not to include. But they have to be there because that connects to the fact that He's just on some level spiritually responsible for destroying another family. I mean, all throughout the film, we've heard about how devastated his family was by what happened to his son. And he's just killed someone else's son, essentially, you know, and that's really important to see. And it's really important to see those kids, you know. So I think that, you know, all of that is there to, to really kind of lead to this in some ways very unsatisfying conclusion, but like on purpose, you know, like I think he's he's definitely trying something new there. And again, there probably was a version of this film he could have made. I mean, I think the film is very satisfying on, on all sorts of levels, but there probably was a way of that this film could have been a lot more conventional, a lot more satisfying. The Gran Turismo approach. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I, I don't I don't think I like Gran Turismo as much as you guys did. 
I will say I thought it was a much better movie after the crash. Mm-hmm. Like up until that point, I was kind of like uh, I wasn't really enjoying it very much. But then, like kind of its last act, I thought it really kind of came together and, and worked a lot better. I do want to watch it again. My son loved it. I mean, I found the comparison of yours, Jordan, quite interesting because I think Gran Turismo. There's so many graphics. It, it has so many visual conceits and gimmicks, as it should, right? It's so modern. It's also such a simulation, right? Um, yeah that I never felt that the cars were that dangerous. I felt that the setup was dangerous of gamers racing, right? Whereas in Ferrari, these cars felt very tactile and rickety and terrifying to me. Like they show the brake coming off in one scene and it rolling down the hill. These are like gizmos (laughs) wrapped together as good as, as great as they are for the time, right? And as revolutionary Uh as Ferrari was, right? There's a simplicity to them. They're like these beta models. Um, even when he shows his son, Piero, the engineering of it, right? And describes the like shape. They're like at the very early stages of working on how to make cars go fast, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when they have the whole debate about the cigarette lighter in the car, right? I guess you might still have that in NASCAR where they try to take every ounce off a car. And they probably wouldn't let you do that or whatever. At the same time, get the idea that like they weren't even thinking of these things quite yet they weren't at that stage of car manufacturing and so i did find this film maybe didn't have the emotional stakes of the vulnerability of being in a car as telegraphed but they had the sense of a car being uh, a death contraption fully set up it really reminded me oddly uh just came to mind of first man first man i think captures this like no other space movie right i think um is it claire foy that plays the wife yeah she has this line where she she basically I don't I don't know I I haven't seen this in a few years but she's terrified of her husband Neil Armstrong going to space and she she calls it like a heap of junk metal or something along those lines right <laughs> and it's one of the greatest space films because it really reminds you that like mathematics and sheet metal got people to the moon right yeah. <laughs> and. I think this film does a decent job of bringing it back to the tactility of a car, like this idea of like, this is just fuel and contraption and a spark. And he gets at that when he's talking to his kid. And so I think it does that very well. And I think what's so interesting about Gran Turismo is Gran Turismo is working on this level of like emotional payoff. It understands emotional stakes and our natural love of emotional investment in certain characters and this is playing off of way more cerebral and heady ideas. So it's way less satisfying and way more tactile. It's it's way more in the materiality of things and in the metaphysical aspect of material projects, right? Because I brought up the divinity earlier as this idea of like Enzo and engineering and obsessed with that as this like compulsive lifelong, and this is my pure inference, all this um, <laughs> quest, right? Hmm. But it was my reading of the film. So I think this is way more in that realm of like aesthetics and philosophical ideas, whereas Gran Turismo is way more in like the human drama, right? Mm. And David Harbour is such a winning performance in that movie. He ple- he said he wanted to be like the coach from Hoosiers, right? Like he's he's mining the, the, the biggest cliches, but the biggest winners in sports movie history, right? And Another thing that's interesting about the two for me is that a lot of ink, rightfully so, is looked at how man is once again creating a film about a master craftsman who's good at what he does and dedicated to what he does, right? And perhaps reflecting on his career and his avoir 
And not much, understandably so as well, was dedicated to like Neil Blomkamp of like completely moving into this new space, mm -hmm. like his protagonist in that movie. So I think there's a really interesting, oh, interesting. whether it's happenstance or not, this yeah. fortuitous meta element in Gran Turismo of him doing this very like first working in simulation and then entering into a new space and being out of your element. And Gran Turismo is totally Neil Blomkamp to me, out of his element, doing something more mainstream, more glossy, filled with all this like digital CGI stuff. And not that he doesn't do that in his in his first films, but it has a different tonality. It has a different register. And it, to me, that they both worked on an interesting meta way. Anyways, that I, I love this is... foray into uh, Neil Blomkamp. <laughs> Uh, yeah. studies this is this yeah is i mean a burgeoning or a nascent one right he's not quite he doesn't have quite the canon yet but uh sure. it's slowly forming right i mean he had a immediately people kind of jumped off the neil blancamp train right i mean everyone loved him right out of the gate but elysium was very divisive right and uh, by the time chappie came out no one really seemed to care yeah anymore. and i remember i mean elysium that was a year when there were several big sort of big budget like sci-fi fantasy type disasters if i remember correctly yeah. and then like elysium was the last one and it was like elysium was gonna like save it was like gonna save the summer or it was gonna like not save the summer <laughs> and like everything was gonna go to shit and it wound up being like the biggest of the busts. And I remember watching it and I thought the first half of Elysium was so good. I thought the first half of Elysium, I was like, oh my God, this is like, I am totally, totally into it. And then the last half of Elysium or like the third act was just people fighting and just none of it made any sense. And it was just, it just completely fell apart. But I always thought people were a little too hard on that movie. Not the biggest Chappie fan over here, but like, whatever. Interesting concept. <laughs> like, you know, like, why not? You know, not the utter waste of a few hours of your life for Chappie, I felt. I, I enjoyed its sort of anarchic energy, I remember. Yeah, yeah. And I remember seeing Elysium a little late. And so I saw it right after Interstellar, which came out a year later, which was right. just, there, there's some similarities and overlap there visually and thematically. And it was just, the wrong sequence to see it in, but I still remember being way more forgiving of that film than others. Where I was just like, it wasn't that bad. Interestingly enough, the Elysium score is used in Black Hat. So, you know, Michael Mann is, I mean, among, the, you know, like I said, not every person who works with him uh, winds up having the best experience, but like uh. composers often are the ones who get completely screwed um, because they'll often compose stuff and like a lot of their music just winds up not getting used. Um, he's a lot like Terrence Malick in this regard. Black Hat has a score ostensibly by, I believe, Harry Gregson Wagner. I don't know how much of his music is actually in the finished film, but the score from Elysium is in there. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like he uses like temp tracks or he kind of decides like throws stuff out and tries all these things. And Ferrari, they had a temp track uh towards the end from the insider. And I think he just decided to use it. Like the uh. big climactic music from the insider makes a appearance in the big climactic moment of Ferrari when Enzo visits the crash site. That's that's the music from the insider, right after Russell Crowe gives his uh has a 60 minutes interview um oh, easter egg so it's just it's very man you know yeah use the temp track the other scene i wanted to talk about was the opera scene uh for me i took a course in proust and i feel like it was like one of the most proustian moments i've almost ever seen in cinema there's these long periods in in search of lost time where he's <laughs> at the opera going from character to character for hundreds of pages, like getting into their inner lives. And the fact that man, for me, accomplished this in such a small and contracted and condensed 
manner, I found very moving and very profound, beautiful, and also a crazy, interesting reflection on art and on the way that art evokes feeling and memory. And we've talked so much about art as this sort of technological thing, right? That's kind of in a masculine sense, right? And here's art as a more feminine sense, in my opinion. Hmm. I think it's this great interlude in the film. And I, I mean, it's in the more symbolic way and the more aesthetic hmm. way when I say feminine, right? But it's this feminine energy of art as an emotional well that, that brings up the past. And you wrote about it quite beautifully, Bilga, in, in your I review your initial write-up. Um, what did everyone think about the opera scene and its significance in this film? Like I said in my, in, in my initial review, uh, you know, the, the opera scene I thought was was beautiful, first of all, uh, because of the way that it connected each of these characters' memories. And in a way, um, for each of them, it was kind of like a little defining moment. He used it as a, as a character development device. The other thing, though, about the opera scene, and I actually talked to man about this. It didn't wind up in my interview, but we talked quite a bit about the opera scene. You know, he actually, that particular song was like really important to him. I mean, it's it's a, a Parigi Okara from uh, La Terraviata, I believe. And it's a song about, if I remember correctly, I don't I don't have the, the plot of La Traviata in my head at the moment, but but it's a it's a song about a, a, a man promising to this woman that they're going to go to Paris and everything's going to be wonderful. And it's kind of this dream of a future that he's laying out for her. But I think she's also like dying. So it's kind of, it's not going to happen. And I got the sense that that idea was really important to man. It's funny because it's like not translated. It's, you know, it's, it's a scene that like, if you know that opera and you know that scene, you'll, it'll resonate with you. But if you don't, <laughs> you know, um, but obviously the sadness comes through and, and in some ways it's more important to him to capture the mood than to convey information. And that's, I think, one of the things that that's so distinctive about his about his filmmaking. Sometimes he doesn't care if you don't understand exactly what's happening. He wants you to feel something and he's convinced that that will kind of carry you through. So I think the, you know, the scene is important on that level, too, because it's it, it, in some ways, you know, the way Enzo is with with Laura. There's something about that in his history with Laura and also that speaks to sort of the way that he continued to try and save Dino, you know, who obviously died. Like it, it connects to that scene later when he and Laura are, are arguing over what happened to Dino and how Laura still kind of blames him for it. And this idea that like no matter how much we try, like the future is not, you know, the future is never going to be what we want it to be, you know this kind of looking towards the future and dreaming of the future. Well, is it a way that we kind of get through our lives or is it a delusion? And I think there's something there. At the same time, though, I think opera is key to the movie in that it's sort of explaining, it speaks to sort of the style of the film, which is very broad and mannered. And, and you know, these are not small performances. I mean, that's, that's what I love about Driver's performance here. It's like he's doing this accent, but He's also not like shying away from just like these really big scenes. I mean, he takes up a lot of space. I mean, that's why in my initial review, I talked about how he was like almost like a, in this case, it wasn't a force of nature because there's nothing nature-y about him. Like it's a force of just like all the stuff he's like the steel and the concrete and the asphalt. And like, he's a, he's not a figure out of nature. He's a figure out of just like engineering and machinery and, and factories and things like that. That's, 
just, you know, he's like such a constructed figure. But it's a broad performance, and hers is a broad performance, too. And the other performances are broad, too. I mean, Deportago, you know, Gabriel Leone gives a pretty broad performance. You know, Dempsey, of all people, gives a broad performance. I mean, the film is pitched at that kind of operatic level, which also, you know, in a way, like Adam Driver's 39 when the movie was made, and he's playing, a you know, a 50-year-old man, you know, I mean, or no, he's playing a 60 year old man um you know it's like all these things and like the makeup doesn't look exactly perfect mm. and like the gray hair is a little fake and everything but like that's opera right in opera you know you've got like you know a 70 year old tenor playing you know a dashing young swordsman you know or like a, a you know 70 year old diva playing the angelic virginal daughter of a merchant i mean it, it's opera it's kind of the way it is you sort of buy into it so i do feel like there's a connection with opera there also modena was apparently very famous for its opera you know it had there were two competing opera houses i believe luciano pavarotti is from modena or, or maybe got a start there when i went to modena and interviewed man he took me on a walking tour of this of the city and i mean this dude is 80 years old and he's just like charging around and he's, he had like this huge huge like um shoulder bag and then like like binder full of just like stuff and he was just like walking around down the street like at one point a bicycle came and like i couldn't tell if like the bicycle almost ran us over or if michael mann almost ran over the bicycle <laughs> like this woman just started yelling at us you know because you're, you're like he wasn't walking on the sidewalk he's just walking straight down the cobblestone streets and he knows the place so well he spent six months there he knows every nook and corner of it and they used every corner i mean they shot the whole thing in modena they even had it doubling for rome in a couple of scenes and like the people on the street know him you know like people were coming up and asking to take pictures with him and stuff like it's like he's like the mayor of modena now you know um but you know he showed me the opera house and stuff like that uh you know like these were all just really kind of central things in life in modena and he wanted to make sure to kind of represent that stuff but again i think that speaks to the style of the film the performance style of the film as well yeah, I mean, there's something super succinct, right, about this film. If you think about it as a composite of a life in three, I think it's like three weeks, um, or it's in the summer, three right? Months, I think. Short span of time, right? Yeah. But we're also getting this idea of, of where Ferrari spent his life, right? And we get the religion early on, and then the opera in the middle, right? These public gatherings, these spaces where people convene. And I think the religious scene gets at his professional eschatology or end, end point, right? His goal there. So that scene's looking in a futural way. Yeah. And this scene is all looking backwards, right? right? I mean, everyone is having flashbacks. It's this idea of, of how we're haunted by time, about how there's an empty, not an emptiness, but there is a longing within everyone, right? And I like that you did bring up this idea of, you bring this up in your piece too, and man talks about it, irreconcilable, conflicts or mm. these opposing things that can never fully be solved in life. And there is a, that energy throughout this film, right? I mean, mm -hmm. there's the whole duality of the two households throughout. It doesn't feel like he's ever privileging one or the other. I mean, very early on in the funny sequence, right, where where Laura comes in, Penelope Cruz, and with the gun, right, and the whole antics of shooting it. But her main phrase there that'll capture audiences early or right away, right? Is that whatever you do, just don't let the maids know, right? Like whatever infidelities and affairs you have, they're okay. So you realize that they are no longer a healthy functioning marriage. 
you don't get the sense that they're polyamorous in any way, <laughs> which they kind of are, right? When you have those very central, like heated uh -oh. moments, but you get the sense that they're over. They are a performative marriage at this point, right? A professional mm -hmm. arrangement. Yet there is a level of of mutual sadness and mutual respect and reverence between the two as much as they piss each other off, right? And you could see in that sex scene between the two, they're dormant, but once thriving infatuation for one another, right? Mm -hmm. um, they're a fully realized, but messy couple, right? And then on the other end of the, the spectrum, right, you have the lightness with uh, Lena, right? In her household, the sort of domestic calm, uh, this sort of gauzy look to those scenes as well, right? Mm. A softness. And she's never looked at as the like homewrecker, right? Maybe a smidge when there's the whole Laura finding out with the banker and then getting kind of pissed off and driving over there and seeing the car. For the most part, it's not leaning into the melodrama too much. And what I'm trying to get at is I think everyone is shown to have just this complicated emotional and personal depth that's what i loved about the opera scene and i loved how quickly it tapped into that and sort of i think balanced the the narrative temporally we had the future now we have the past the crash i think sets us in the present um pass it to you jordan i mean we didn't let you give your two cents on the opera scene what was your experience with this Actually, I think uh, when I was first watching it, I was looking at it almost as a different kind of sports cliche. Like the moment before the big match that we always get, which is usually retrospective anyway. So I could like, like everyone's in the past in this one. And that's you know, a strong theme in this movie for sure. Um, and again, it's going to tie up into the way that Crash wraps up, which we always talked about. But I was, remember I was watching, I was kind of thinking like, this is just a really elevated like Gordon Bombay on the ice. <laughs> Mighty Ducks, right? You got to go back to your place, but it does such a great job. Like everything you guys said, of really like for someone who's never been to this part of the world, like really situating that setting. As you said, it realizes in some ways they've been cultural cliches, but they're pretty effective of like really like building into that into that setting, into the time. As I mentioned before, though, I like the idea of it being like soldiers going off to war with the letters, and whatnot. The opera scene, the way everything kind of combines. Like I was saying that like, to me, I was very much in my head like this is very sports like this is like something I'd seen a sports movie. It's just playing very beautifully in front of me. That was my initial take on it. When I saw it in theaters. I love that, too, as like the big outing the night before the big game. I don't know exactly where this is in the film, but like have it wrong. It's a little earlier than than when yeah. such a scene would occur, no. but I, I love this reading. <laughs> Me too. I mean, it does work with the Bombay flashback, right? Because the whole sepia tone, right? which is also just a convention of flashbacks, but it definitely it's it's quite fun. I mean, I also saw it like I recently watched The Age of Innocence, Scorsese's film, right? And there's a lot of opera scenes in that, right? And what was interesting is all those are sort of really about the social dynamics, and this is definitely about that, but. It's really internal, whereas that's very external to me. Yeah. Um, this really plums sort of a spiritual, emotional center of all the characters. And also jumping into the broadness of it, too. I love that reading of yours, Bilga. Um, the, the ornateness, the costuming aspect, right? Because so much ink has been spilled about the accents and the wig, the paunch. And it definitely was distracting for me, I'll admit. I, I just found it uninteresting after uh. I got distracted and overcame it. I was just like, I don't really care to fixate on that. Um, but I do find it interesting. I I loved your juxtaposition of this role by Adam Driver as technically imperfect, I think you wrote, yeah, but wonderfully alive. And what I loved was you were also comparing it to 
the Dick Cheney performance by Christian Bell, right? I had, to, had to throw poor Christian Bale under the bus. And he's like my favorite actor in the yeah. world. But that, yeah. People. Yeah, which is technically remarkable, especially if you know Christian Bell and Dick Cheney and how yeah. diametrically opposed they are in so many ways and how he resembles him in yeah. an uncanny way, right? But But there's something sort of lifeless about it. It's almost like they put too much effort into the technicality of it and forgot just to animate the character. Yeah. Um, or he sort of gets lost in the prosthetics. But yeah. what's equally interesting, right? And correct me if I'm wrong, was, wasn't was Christian Bell first also up for this role? Yes. <laughs> right? So I think that's also equally fascinating. And and couldn't do it, apparently. I mean, this is what he said. He couldn't do it because he couldn't do the weight gain. Like he, because, you know, Christian Bale has done lots of weight gain, weight loss, weight gain, weight loss for his movies. And he was just like, this, this is going to be like too much for me to do. And Adam Driver's like, where's the fat suit? <laughs> Put it on. Let's go. You know, like it's such a great, you know, contrast between the two actors and, and their really? approach. And like I said, I love Christian Bale. I mean, I think Christian Bale, I'll watch anything with Christian Bale in it, but didn't love Vice, did not love Vice at all. And but it was like so frustrating watching it because it was kind of like he's doing a dead on Dick Cheney impersonation and he's got like all the prosthetics. It's all like perfect. And it's like I feel like I know less about Dick Cheney after having watched this movie than I did going in. And um, I think the performance that was actually on my mind when I was writing that review, but I couldn't I think I couldn't write about it yet because the embargo hadn't dropped was Maestro, um, which was also at Venice, but which premiered a couple of days later. But I'd seen it in New York and, you know, I kind of hadn't written my review of that yet, but I had it in my mind. But it was, um, you know, it was like, um, again, a perfect reconstruction. And Maestro's better movie than Vice. I, I don't love Maestro. I have my issues with it, but much more accomplished film than Vice. But also like a perfect impersonation of Leonard Bernstein that like didn't really come to come alive for me. And I was I kind of like had that on my mind because I was kind of like, well, Adam Driver is doing something like in some ways technically messier. But like, I want to follow this guy to the ends of the earth. You know, like I want to know more. I want to know everything I can about Enzo Ferrari having watched this movie and I'm captivated by him. And I can't imagine anyone else ever playing that character ever. You know, um, he just like owns the part. Not that they're going to be a million Enzo Ferrari movies, especially after this one. But like, I'm just captivated by that performance and by just the life he gives that character. I mean, there's this one scene like he's just like sitting there in uh, Lena Lardy's house, with Shailene Woodley, and she's talking and he's just like playing with a plate and he like bites the plate. And it's just like this throwaway moment. And I'm just like, is he just improvising that? Is that something that maybe they, you know, because Piero Ferrari is still alive and was actually at the screening I was at, you know, but like, is that maybe something that he told them that his dad did or, but it's just like such a wonderful throwaway little moment. And it's just like, he is into this part. He is living this part right now. Um, and, and you're just there with him. It's just, I mean, he's not saying anything during that scene. He's just listening, you know, it, it's captivating. It really is um, in a way that these other performances that are like much more like perfect, quote unquote, are not, you know? I think of Adam Driver as this person who often truly comes out in the trifling things he does or like the minutia of his performances, like the odd mannerisms, the small moments, like yeah. when you're not supposed to notice him or you're not supposed to be paying attention and he does something that's off script or off beat or off kilter. And it's like, oh, hmm. it makes you rethink the convention of the archetype that he's playing. And he's always alienating you yet 
captivating you at the same time. Jordan actually brought up to me and he read your interview with man and he had a really interesting question you haven't brought up that I'm curious and I want to hear brought up about the humor, right? Of Enzo Ferrari. And I don't know exactly what you're, you were mystified by this, George. So if you want to just articulate it. Yeah. Like you mentioned that Enzo was like a funny dude, or at least man says he was a funny guy. And I was wondering, why do you think he chose not to really, really emphasize that in this film? Because I wasn't getting funny other than like we mentioned, like the film trying to make me laugh for the sake of breaking tension here and there. Hmm. Uh, What were your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, there, there, there are some funny scenes in it. I mean, there's, um, I mean, the scene with his mom, the couple, I mean, all, almost all the scenes with his mom. <laughs> yeah. Like, like when they talk about, you know, when, when he's talking about the, um, the, the driver that just died and he talks about, you know, if anything, it was his mother that cut, that killed him, you know, and he kind of goes into that whole thing. And, um, you know, all I know is when, when mothers get involved in business, death usually follows. And it's just, I mean, that's uh-huh. a funny line. He delivers it perfectly. That's true. Um, and, and, you know, and the Dracula accent helps. I mean, it's just really <laughs> funny. By the way, Adam Driver would make a great Dracula. Um, but, um, I mean, and there are other moments like that, too. Or when he, like, when he sits down, <laughs> you know, there's a very serious scene later, you know, during the race, I think, or right before the race, and he's like in the in the bar with his little like, consigliere guys, and he sits down. He's like, "I have some notes. The fuel has to go into the car, not on the driver." <laughs> it's, like, it's like his very first like little rolled, you know, little um, you know, admonition to this these guys that we thought he was going to give him like something serious, and he's like, "Like, don't spill fuel on the drivers," you know, like, or even like the scenes where he's giving his uh, his instructions to the drivers. The way he keeps giving. Tarufi shit about how old he is and you know and about how he's never he's like don't ask me for a for a navigator you know all these roads and the, the implication is he's like driven this race so many times and he's never won you know yeah um, so there's a lot of stuff like That's that really- I, I don't know, i thought it was a real i thought it was a really funny performance and and penelope cruz even though she has like some really emotional scenes she also has a couple of really funny funny parts you know i mean shooting at the beginning but also um right after everybody dies he goes in you know to see her and she's sitting there in the dark and she's just like well this guy called i told him to go fuck himself you know and then the yeah. guy from fiat called and and that's the true. driver has this expression like oh my god did you tell him because that's the guy who's gonna buy the company and he goes so she brought her because i was thinking she was the funniest character in this from yeah, the yeah. introduction when they get the calls uh tell so and so and she finally does the hang up thing and her just detachedness to the whole situation for me she stood out as a, yeah, I mean I think it's a funny movie. movie I think it's intentionally funny you know uh, that, that scene right after the driver dies when he says Deportago called my office in the morning I mean that's a funny line it's really really dark funny you know yeah. I mean the guy has literally just died but but like that's that's an indication early on that the film is that it's gonna be dare to have fun with like some really dark stuff you know I do think that there is a weird from what he conveys, man does in that tidbit and the portrayal for the most part of Ferrari, right? He has funny moments, but he is kind of somber and reserved. Also, the, now thinking about it and reading that quote, and I'm not sure if I was reading that right, but I got the feeling that he was this sort of convivial, bigger than like larger than life Italian, almost mm-hmm. like a jokester. And I'm just, I just don't know anything about Enzo Ferrari. And it made me quite curious. But I think you're all spot on too, that if anyone's truly funny in this right it's it's paula and you know she's unfiltered she's at that point of like so much grief so much pain that she just doesn't give two fucks (laughs) to be blunt right just she doesn't care 
and she's not going to put up with pleasantries or niceties. And you get a lot of their duality between the two in both of their visits to the grave, right? Yeah. Their son's grave. And the funny part, though, is for so much of the film, Enzo is kind of, even if he talks a lot, there's something very laconic about him. There's something very quiet about him. To me, he feels like a very taciturn soul. Even when he's saying really harsh and commandeering speeches to his drivers, right? The camera almost has to come to him. And he almost holds the camera. And that's maybe part of the charisma. That's, I think, what Driver was getting at. I think he wanted that, that feeling of like, here's someone that was so prominent and so powerful that he didn't need to be bombastic, right? Mm. But he is quite loquacious when he's talking to his son, you know, deceased son, when he's talking to the grave, right? Yeah. Yeah. He's very casual. In, in contrast, right, Laura just stares at the grave and just has the most, maybe the most underrated and affecting scene in the film where she's just a smorgasbord of emotions and depths and complexities. And there's there's nothing that comes out of her mouth, right? It's yeah. just all affect. And that, I think, was a, a brilliant way early on of showing that they're both dealing with the same trauma. They're both dealing it with very different ways, privately and publicly, and they're inverted privately and publicly. Anyways, we could mine this forever. <laughs> I feel like we can go for hours. So we always end, actually, it's the perfect thing to do with a sort of underdog overrated. Uh, I haven't even brought this up to Bilga. You could put this in the course of Michael Mann's filmography. You could put this in the slate of 2023 films, whatever you want, whatever context you want to sort of contextualize it in, feel free to. But it's an easy duality. And I'll let you actually start as our guest. So once again, it is, is this an overrated film or is it an underdog film? Well, I mean, I think it's definitely an underdog film. Um, I certainly don't think it's overrated. Um, And I think that it'll, like I said earlier, I mean, I think that the film will have a longer life ahead of it. I mean, I think it already does. Um, And it'll be interesting to see how people discover it. I mean, it, it, you know, it's like, like we talked about, it does hit certain conventional elements because man is very good at, at knowing those elements and, and, and delivering on those. But then there are certain things it denies you, a certain genre pleasures, if you will, that it denies you. And because it does that, uh, it's, a, it's a harder film for, I think, for, for some people to wrestle with because it's, it feels like it gets so close, but it doesn't, right? It doesn't quite get to where, it, where you think it's going. But I do think that that's intentional. And I think people will appreciate that more as the years past I mean, you know again with with man it always helps to see the films again and luckily they're beautiful enough that people do want to see them again I, I have this thing i like to say which is a film you have to see more than once has to be a film that you want to see more than once um that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be perfect i mean obviously i, I love watching great movies over and over again but like sometimes i'll watch a movie the first time not quite understand it initially but there'll be something about it that's like beautiful enough or captivating enough or, or alluring enough that i'll that i'll want to see it again sometimes i'll watch a movie and i'll hate it and people will be like well watch it again i'm like well i don't want to watch it again it sucks you know like there's nothing in it like there aren't even just kind of incidental pleasures in it that might make me want to watch it again it just feels like a chore you know um, I don't think man films feel like chores in that sense. I mean, they might to some people, but I think by and large, people do enjoy going back to them. And I think that will happen with this movie. Um, so definitely underdog, underrated. And I'm sure one day, you know, 20 years from now, if we're still around, there'll be like people, you know, who who will say Ferrari is overrated, you know, because people can't stop talking about it. 
Yeah, I will say is uh, a day after watching it in theaters, I was on the complete overrated side. I had this was one of those ones that just didn't hit me in theaters at all. I don't know if that was my expectations or whatnot, but like we discussed through this, it's one of those ones that slowly crept back into my mind though. And for our discussion earlier, it's one of those movies I wasn't planning on rewatching at all. And now I'm kind of excited for it to be on streaming because I feel like that is actually a better place for me to watch this one. Because uh, I feel like this uh, this is like the one I'm going to want to pause. I'm going to want to like really zone in on it. I'm going to go ahead and go with underdog in this one, though, because I'm completely swayed, not only by our discussion, but by Bilga's like complete breakdown of the ending. Your article really sparked it, just sparked that ending in my head in a way it just didn't after the theaters. So I'm stoked for my sec actual second watch. I know this is still in theaters. It's not going to be on streaming for a while. But I think that's like you said, I think this speaks completely to your, your to your breakdown. This is going to be those one. This is going to be one that you come back to kind of like you mentioned, like Black Hat with this recent little fervor here online. And I'm going to have a different appreciation for it than I did when I watch it when I watch it again. I feel like I came in a little too hard, too harsh on man. I don't know why. I don't know what I was going into that theater with a with a vengeance for. But uh, yeah, I, 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 our discussion, I was completely swayed on terms of like where this sits. And I, I agree with you. I think it's more intentional. And I'm one of those viewers who was dissatisfied by those unresolved twists. And I think that it is actually is a charm of this film. I mean, one of the first things that I've learned to do when I don't like something or I find it a little bit underwhelming is to immediately like go to find people who did love it and <laughs> try to see what I possibly missed. Right. <laughs> I just loved hearing you get so much more by instead of just like throwing it aside delving into like the multiplicities within this thing right because there there is a lot to mine in art so many people are so stalwart and defensive about their subjective first experience that they close themselves off to these opportunities to experience it more maybe you won't like it the second time maybe you won't like it the, and you'll just forget it that's fine like but at least you've had something more dynamic extracted from this film right yeah. um and on that point, I will also admit, like on my first viewing, I think I was constantly engaged. I, I mean, I'm a big man head as well. Like I've watched all his films multiple times, but I don't think it hit me as much as I immediately expected in the same visceral manner I expected. But it's a film that's lingered in my psyche here in my mind ever since, right? I, I saw it. Um, and it's a film that like is intriguingly reflective in my appreciation for it in a manner that echoes the film itself in this <laughs> idea of irreconcilable conflicts, right? Because I, I still find myself wanting it to be a little bit more. Like I think about what you brought up, Bilga, um, on Blank Checker, you brought up the anecdote of being on that episode and Griffin saying that like he expected another hour. And I can't help but to think this would be a better film if it did have another hour. I could see people rejecting that. <laughs> but I do think that like, I wanted a little bit more as well. Like as much as it gave me, I felt like it gave me scrappings, but like the reckoning of that crash was a bit too brief for my liking. It was almost too economic. And so I felt like it jam-packed a lot of really awesome and fascinating ideas that I've been able to parse and chew over. But I wish that it was a bit more grand. I feel like it would have earned that third hour almost as much as Oppenheimer earned its third hour. Like that crash could have really entered into a unique space where we, we felt all of these really intriguing 
um, an overlapping and concurrent yet also divergent storylines, right? Mm -hmm. Of of the son, right? Of his legacy, of the wife, of the two wives, of the two households, all these dualities that are going on throughout the film, right? That they're capturing on every level. Like the cinematography is even capturing the missing scenes of these worlds very beautifully and very differently, right? I think I read somewhere that there's like a Renaissance Caravaggio inspired lighting for like all the interior shots, right? Very dramatic and very dark, like a shadowiness, right? And there's something very impressionistic and green, right? About the racing, right? It's very natural, right? Even that is kind of awesome and gorgeous and cool. Um, and shout out, we didn't bring up the cinematographer, right? Uh, Fincher's guy or the recent guy, right? Eric Messerschmitt, right? He does a great job with this film. It's a gorgeous film. Uh, so this film has all these dualities, has all these thoughts. I just wanted it to be more. I really did. I still stand behind that. I think this at least deserved to be a two and a half hour film. And I I don't know why like it necessarily wasn't. Maybe it's exactly what man wanted. I, I'm curious if he felt the pressure of studios. I don't know. But I will still call it an underdog. Uh, I think it got lost in late 2023 Oscar film talk. It didn't get any Oscar nominations. There's a long list of great films that got totally left out of that. But I do feel like we had a little bit of uh, abundance of riches at the end of 2023, especially for people who weren't able to... Um, this isn't a knock at you, Bill, because I know you get to see stuff early, right? But for, for us plebeians, us peasants who have to go and actually... <laughs> no, and, and I'm sort of in that... I mean, I, I obviously still have to see stuff early, but now that I live, you know, not in New York and like I, I'm completely beholden to the two, to the two multiplexes, <laughs> I'm kind of like, I wanted to see, you know, this movie, The Promised Land that I reviewed out of Venice. And it's a great, great film. I've seen it several times, but like I, I've actually still haven't seen it on a big screen and i really want to see it on a big screen and the fucking thing opened this weekend and it's like not anywhere near me it didn't you know and i'm kind of like oh come on yeah i want to see that too they're weird like i thought i missed my american fiction window because yeah. it like was playing in southern california we couldn't make it because it was christmas then it was nowhere for three weeks i'm like kind of bitter at my wife because she wanted to go see a great movie but she wanted to see the iron claw and it's not that i have an emphasis to see either one i just always want to see what i can see while it's still within a theatrical window and, and it comes out later so yeah <laughs> it's so frustrating because it's like it's so hard to tell i mean if you live in new york great right it's like you know when the movie opens it opens in new york so you know when it's opening though even even in new york it's hard sometimes to get a handle on what's coming out um but it's then the rest of the country it's like I don't know when these fucking movies are coming. And it's kind of like, what? This can't be right. <laughs> we can't go on like this. It's like, I'm like the guy who's been in New York for 28 years. And finally, I I, I moved somewhere else. I'm like, what? <laughs> this is what you people have to put up with? <laughs> you know, like outraged. But yeah, Suburban. it's very, it's very strange. You know, back in the day, trailers would kind of tell you um, and posters and things like that. And, and if you go to the theater enough, they will. But like my multiplex doesn't even have put that many posters. Yeah, the suburban plight of we even if it has the IMD release date, right? That's for select cities usually. Yeah, and then they drop it for so long that you don't know when it's coming back. So yeah, uh, it was a few, a, a few, a couple of months ago. Um, you know, they they um they re-released Die Hard right in theaters. Yes. I had no idea. I was kind of like, yeah, I feel like I miss a lot of those re those re releases. <laughs> I saw it on Twitter. Somebody mentioned, it and I was like, wait, Die Hard, and it, I mean, they really released it. It was out on like two thousand screens or some insane, and it was absolutely playing near me. And I, and I took my son to see it, and thank God I'd seen that. But but it was kind of like, 
if you're gonna release it in theaters, you gotta tell people it's coming out in theaters. Like, put a trailer. I mean, I'm in the theaters every weekend. I'm like, why didn't I see a trailer for <laughs> freaking Die Hard? You know. Um, What's insane too is they just need a, like a 20 second spot. We all know what Die Hard is. Yeah, poster. Just put a big poster. Yeah. For a month, it's the theater. Like, I don't think you have to pay that much money to put a movie poster in a movie theater. I think it's just like I think the theater decides. But it's kind of like put a poster of Die Hard for a month so that everybody that comes by sees that Die Hard is coming back for a week. You know. I was lucky. My wife was the one who found out that The Abyss played for one night remastered. Yes, one night only. Yes. <laughs> and then I posted it and I had a bunch of friends DMing me like, what? I missed this? They were they were furious. And I'm like, one night only. Sorry. Yeah. It's the Abyss, you know, and it's kind of like so many people missed that in theaters too back in the day. You know, I mean, you guys are younger than me, but I remember like, I went and saw it in theaters, but it was not a big hit, you know? Yeah. And it was gorgeous. I got to see it in Dolby. Maybe it was all in Dolby. I'm not sure, but absolutely stunning yeah. to look at. Great film. So thanks so much for coming on. And we haven't done this. We'll try to move quick because we've been going for a while now. Okay. But I, I, we always ask our first time guests their top five sports movies. Okay. And I'm very fascinated to hear your top five because I know you have a very broad range of interests. <laughs> yeah. So let's just jump right into it. So because I was thinking, um, like it made me think, sorry, what, what qualifies as a sports movie? Because because like, because because I know like, there's like the underdog sports movie concept, you know, there's sports movies that are like really about the sport. And then there's sports movies that are like, anyway, he, here's what I came up with. And I have a bunch of other films that I like draft day. I love draft day. Is draft day a sports movie? I mean, it's about sports, but like we don't actually see any sports in it, you know, or Moneyball. Like those are movies that I'm like, I guess they're sports movies. Those are completely sports movies in our book. We call those the behind the scenes sports movies. Right, right. And those are about way more centered in sports than some of the stuff we've covered. Like some of the other ones we covered, right? we've covered like the tenth victim, <laughs> this like Italian sixties um, film. We've which one? you know the tenth victim. Oh, um, you got Endgame. We've covered uh, which not the Marvel movie. <laughs> yeah, that was the other one. Um, What's some other was one? Was that one Blood of Champions too? Yeah, <laughs> we covered as a sports one. Anyway, so, sorry. well, because because then I was thinking, okay, well, then there are movies that are like sports movies, but they're not actually about any sport. Mm. Like Top Gun and Top Gun Maverick are sports movies, right? Even the director really called agree. it like Joseph Kosinski when I interviewed him. He's like, you know, Top Gun is kind of a sports movie. You know, School of Rock, I would say, is actually kind of a sports movie, right? But the five I decided on, um, and I'm not counting Ferrari, even though Ferrari might actually be one of those, but um, I've got Raging Bull. It's got sports in it. <laughs> um, uh, Offside, the Iranian film about the girls trying to see uh, Iranian national team play. And it's like, we don't see any soccer in it because uh -huh. women are not allowed into the matches. So they dress up as boys. I mean, it starts off with this one girl who's like dressed up as a boy and then she's discovered by like a revolutionary guard and then she's herded into this little little area with all the other girls who dressed up as boys. And it's basically about them. It's their whole interaction. They're trying to convince one of the soldiers to let him go and but they don't get to see the game. So, wow, I did not know Jafar Bahani had a sports movie. It's his masterpiece. It's his uh, greatest film. It's so good. It's so, so good. Um, I believe it's the film that he made right before, you know, he was arrested. Um, Holy crap. <laughs> like, mind-blown, sore spot, like, embarrassing sports, sore spot right there. But thank you for well, bringing that up. It's also, like, out. a film that's not easy to find anymore. Um, I mean, I have a DVD of it, like, back when it was on DVD, but I don't think it's it's out anymore. All right, so, so I had Raging Bull. I had that. I, I have to do Michael Mann's Ollie, which I love. A movie which I hated when I first saw it. Um, so, like, this is 
the journey of Michael Mann movies for me. When I first saw Ali, I was just, this is crap. Like, what the hell? And I love it now. And I've watched it many, many times over the years. And I've, I've watched, I mean, there are three different versions of it. I love all three versions. And I think it's just a phenomenal film. Also one of the, one of the all-time great biopics, I think. And any given Sunday, I have to include, uh, again, a movie that I was not like totally crazy about when I first saw it. Though I, I think I liked it when I first saw it. Um, I mean, I saw it you know, when it opened, but then like found myself coming back to over the years. And now it's just kind of a, a regular rewatch for me. And uh, let's see what else. One let's of the most see. awkward pre-adolescent viewings with my parents, the intensity, <laughs> the nude locker scenes. Oh, yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's it's funny because it does actually have it. It hits all the beats of an underdog. I mean, that's the film. Like, in some ways, it does both of the things that we talked about man doing, which is, like, it knows how to manipulate you. It knows all the all the, the buttons to push for, like, the underdog sports movie. And it, and it does absolutely, totally delivers on it by the end. But at yeah. the same time, it's, like, so kind of expansive and Dickensian and, and just, like, it's got a million things going on that just feels so epic, too, you know? I don't think any sports film really captures like the multidimensionality of sports no, almost like that film, right? It yeah. truly sees it all. Like every tier, every aspect. That's why it's so ahead of its time. Yeah. Especially now when sports discourse is way more like we know right. when, you know, Tua gets a concussion, the dirt on the medical team, right? Who yeah. like kind of uh -huh. skirted that evaluation, for example. And I don't know, any given it Sunday sort of brings sort of at least a fictional subtext to all these things that we're now getting more access to. I think it's also I think the last good movie Oliver Stone made, you know, it's just like there's just so much going on in that film. And and also just like the bizarre, like, I mean, the eyeball on the field. It's like, really? <laughs> I mean, this is an underdog sports movie. And there's a scene with an eyeball on the field. I mean, you know, um, all right. Was that was that that was four, right? Was that my favorite? Yes. Okay. And then I, I have to do Shaolin Soccer, which I love. I did a list for the Village Voice years ago of like the 51 i did a list of 51 soccer movies from around the world this was when the world cup was happening um not the most recent world cup but the one before that um and i'd always wanted to do it because it's like every country has its own like soccer movie and it was interesting because each one each film kind of reflected something about that culture as as much as it did about sports and about soccer but um i mean i love shaolin soccer but there were all these other movies like a couple a couple of the other ones i considered was um like two half times in hell i think it's a hungarian film about uh, a group of um prisoners who were made to, it's like kind of a longest yard thing about a group of prisoners who were made to play a soccer game by the nazis ends a lot darker than uh, longest yard does and, you know, I was thinking of like a Zidane 21st century portrait, which I love, you know, like it's it's just him. It's like yeah. it's like and it's actually what's funny. I didn't know this until I did the, the this village voice piece, but it was actually apparently a remake <laughs> of another film back in the 70s. I'm blanking on the title of it, but it was a film that the camera just focused on uh, the player George Best, the British player George Best or Irish player, I think, um, just during a game. And it just like it just followed him throughout the game. Can't remember what that's, that film was called, but that was on my list as well. But then Zidane does the same thing. It's just, it's just him, and it's it's fantastic. My my one regret is I, I never saw that movie on a big screen, and it's such a great big screen film. It was shot digitally, but back when like digital video wasn't so hot. But I hope somebody shows it again somewhere because I'd really love to see it on a big screen. Yeah, uh, the George Best one too. I looked it up really quick. Is football as never before? Right. Right. Fascinating. I did not know that either. Um, do you have any other consolation or 
Oh Close. gosh. Um, well, eight men out. I really love. Mm. I'm not, you know, it's funny. I like baseball movies. I'm not a baseball fan. Like I don't enjoy baseball all that much. I don't enjoy watching it. I have been to baseball games and it's definitely much more interesting live, but I've never been able to. The only time I ever watched a baseball game on TV was, was, uh, or decided to watch a baseball game on TV was the one that happened like the, the earthquake game. Mm. The San Francisco Oakland A's. Yeah, yeah. I wow. remember I was like, right, I'm going to watch a baseball game. I turned it on and my fucking earthquake hit. <laughs> Last time I watched a baseball game on TV. Um, but I love baseball movies. You know, there's something inherently very cinematic about that sport. But like, it's cinematic if it's in a movie and not so much actually on the uh-huh. for me. But yes. I yeah. think that it translates to cinema very well. Um, yeah. I won't watch regular season baseball, but I love playoff baseball. Mm-hmm. Like, it really makes me think, unlike any other sport, of how they're all their unique, like, tempos. They have different structural flows. And you really have to sort of learn the language, the cadence of every sport. It's like a musicality, right? And yeah, some you just don't vibe with ever and pick up with. And some, for I have a weird relationship with sports where, like, I get too into one sport and I can't get back into another sport for a while. Uh-huh. Or like I love basketball for a few years, and then this year I loved baseball and mm-hmm. completely immersed myself in baseball suddenly. And then I tried to go to some basketball games, and I was just like, I was having fun. Even Jordan and I, we went to I went to a Clippers game, but just getting in the the cadence and the rhythm of the game was so hard for me. Oh yeah, and I was just like thinking about like how like on a narrative sense, like you know, there's a build up and a crescendo, and a, there should be like a suspense, right? You know, some games are just duds and they're blowout, mm-hmm. but there, there should be this like sort of operatic quality to any sports event if it's truly going to entertain you. Yeah. And, and that game was a dud, so that was probably the problem. But, <laughs> you know, it just lacked that, that. And I just realized, oh, I'd fallen so into the rhythms of baseball leading uh, up to that. Anyway. The, um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm basketball is is i mean I, I love soccer too but um but for the longest time it was hard to watch good soccer here in the u.s and i became a, a basketball guy um and the other film i have to, to shout out is blue chips i couldn't i don't love blue chips enough to list it in my top five but um but i did the i did the commentary for blue chips for the recent blu-ray release of blue chips um so i, I feel a real kinship to that movie also i i watched it like 20 times getting ready to do the commentary um <laughs> and friedkin was like kind of the perfect director for that he's actually you know you don't think of him as a sports movie guy but he was actually a huge basketball fan and almost bought the boston celtics once Right, right before they uh, they acquired Larry Bird, he was contemplating buying the Boston Celtics back when they were a completely moribund franchise. But um, I can kind of see that with his sort of like toughness and his ma- frankness, right? I don't know. I could see him as a Boston Celtics owner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and he was like really good friends with Bob Cousy, um, who's in that movie too. Um, but anyway, it's um, yeah, Blue Chips is another one I, I really like, uh, and and the basketball in Blue Chips is actually pretty good too. Yeah, and the the way it gets at the Bob Knight era of yeah. unhinged coaches and recruiting infractions and so forth. I mean, I I love that film. I rewatched it during the pandemic and was like, yeah, wow. it's, it's great. It's I mean, Ron Shelton wrote it like ten years before it was made. He wrote it before he did Bull Durham and all that stuff, and um, and it it was kind of prophetic. And it also gets into all this stuff that at the time we took as a given, like you know, the idea that these these kids aren't being paid for their for their work and you know he lets um i mean jt walsh plays the bad guy in that movie he's like the you know the the booster who's like bribing the students and stuff but he 
he gets to make like the moral case of the movie, which is fascinating because he's just like these, these colleges make so much money and you know uh, off these kids and they don't get anything. You know, it's like he there's a moment where he has this like big sort of spittle flecked speech and he's like the bad guy, but like he's absolutely right in everything he says and he's become even more right over the years. I like that you also brought up Ron Shelton because we're always wondering like, is there any auteurs in this genre, right? The sports movie yeah. genre. And it's not, he doesn't have enough. He doesn't have enough of filmography in it almost to warrant it. But if there's anyone, it's him. It's him, uh, yeah. Yeah. With- Linklater is like, I mean, he's he doesn't have as many films either, either. But Linklater, he did the Bad News Bears remake, right? School of Rock is also a sports movie, right? I mean, like, if you think about it, like, and yeah. he also had this like Texas football stuff that he was working on. So Everybody think, like, wants some too is definitely. Yeah. yeah. Linklater has like the stirrings of a sports yeah, he's definitely sports adjacent, right? Even Days of Confused, there's a strong baseball. Right, right, right. Oh, yeah, that's right. Thing going on there. Um, and the other one maybe is like Gavin O'Connor, right? And he's kind of infrequent in his films, right? But, you know, with Miracle yeah. and uh, his most recent one, the Ben Affleck one, where he's an alcoholic basketball coach. I'm blanking on the name. Um, Way back, right? Yes, it's right. Great movie. Yeah. Great it, movie. Yeah. No, Gavin O'Connor. I, I love I love Miracle too. And Air. Got a shout out Air, which I love, which made my top 20 list this year. Maybe should have even been higher. I saw it a whole bunch of times. That's a perfect segue, actually, because my very last question was as you know, you're a professional critic and you're very immersed in film. And I wanted to hear your input of where you think the state of the sports movie is, because there's actually a lot of sports movies still. And everyone I feel like talks about it in such a past tense thing. But like this year, we had Nyad, we had Gran Turismo, yeah. we had The Iron Claw, we had Air. We have a lot of like almost Oscar-worthy films. I mean, Nyad got nominated twice, but yeah. <laughs> maybe some of the most milkatos or softball nominations we got there. Um, yeah. Kind of vanity ones, but for whatever, like Jodie Foster was good at it. I'm not going to go too hard on that, but yeah. mediocre movie. But you reviewed in particular The Boys in the Boat, right? And you called it like a refreshing, I think, mid-budget adult drama. Which definitely is, right? It's it's sleek. George Clooney does the thing. He's always kind of like mediocre, but always competent and always entertaining, always good. Like always at least a two and a half star movie. It's ironic that like Boys in the Boat and Ferrari opened same day. <laughs> and they kind of were like sort of closed against each other. And, and Boys in the Boat actually was a success. Like it did really well. Um, certainly a lot better than a lot of people thought it would. Um, I actually became a crew parent this year. Um, so I think I even said that in my review. So like I was like a little more hyper focused on what's going on in Boys in the Boat. But like Boys in the Boat is, I mean, it's like the the flip side of Ferrari because we're talking about all the like man knows the buttons to press and he presses some of them, but then he makes a point of not pressing all of them. Boys in the Boat presses every single button there is. It, it presses buttons you didn't, you'd forgotten existed. Like, you know, it's just like, Every single cliche is in it, but it's done so smoothly and so well that I couldn't help but enjoy it. Right. It's such a good movie. It's oh yeah. Cinematography is beautiful. Yeah. And I said this in the review too. It's like it's like the kind of movie that I used to take for granted and that just, just you just don't see anymore. And mm-hmm. and I re- appreciate it for that reason. And you know, if I'd seen it 20 years ago, I probably wouldn't have enjoyed it at all. You know, like I would have been like, whatever, like forget it. I probably wouldn't have even bothered to see it, you know. And now I'm kind of like, oh where are these movies? Like, I kind of miss these. So as for the state of the sports movie, interesting question, because I feel like we've gone through a period where um, the sports movies, like we didn't have sports movies. We had, I guess what you were saying, backstage sports movies, right? 
you know, we, we had draft day, we had Moneyball, we had High Flying Bird, um, obviously Air, but like other movies too along the way, it was kind of like people weren't interested in the sport anymore, but they were interested in like all the back, backstage stuff. And, and some of that I think had to do with, I think that had something to do with the culture, stuff like fantasy sports and like everybody becoming a GM. Suddenly, like people were more interested in like the dealings and and kind of trade this guy and replace this guy. And, you know, like they were less interested in the actual achievement on the field or the court, yeah. um, which was great for Hollywood on some level, because that stuff is hard to shoot. Right. I mean, that's, it's really hard to like shoot that stuff convincing i mean blue chips does it really well but that's because they've got shaquille o'neal <laughs> and penny hardaway before they became like such stars but like it has real really good basketball players doing basketball right and it's so it's so very convincing in in terms of the actual action on the court it's really hard to do that stuff right i mean i remember victory the john houston movie from like like 1981 or something i mean they have pele in there like they've yeah. they, you know, they got actual players um that stuff is fun to watch. Um, I think it's hard to shoot. It's hard to shoot convincingly. And so for like filmmakers, it's like, oh my God, it's so much easier to just shoot a bunch of people in offices, you know? They don't have to orchestrate this stuff because that's like a stunt thing, right? And and there's probably pressure on them to use a ton of CGI now to do it. And then it's really unconvincing. Um, so yeah, unless you're like doing the Space Jam, a new legacy, and right. throwing your whole IP CGI style into your, your bleachers. Yeah. You got to fill those bleachers with people, right? And yeah, we, and like we, that's the thing. We saw space. I mean, like the original Space Jam is not a good movie, but like my son loved it when he was a little boy and uh, watched it like fifty times. It's fine for what it is, but it's like Space Jam too. I was like, I couldn't even get some decent basketball in that movie, you know. <laughs> but like, uh, what was I going to say? No, but like, so, but I think culturally also, like, we can't do the things these athletes do on the field and on the court we can like we it's so hard now it's like like i think it speaks to the paucity of imagination of like the average viewer nowadays in part because of all the input we get that like we don't actually get we don't really dream anymore our dreams like we don't dream about becoming a great basketball player or a great baseball player i mean kids do still a little bit but like that's not a thing that like the average adult viewer can sort of place themselves in the best we can do is imagine that we'd be like a really good assistant GM, you know, like, you know, I could be a pretty good agent, you know, like it's so sad in a way that like, those are the movies that we relate to. Like I can relate to Moneyball. And, uh, and I think that's just says some, that says something about us, but at the same time, it was kind of nice to see movies that actually did try to depict sort of the physicality of sports. I, I didn't love Iron Claw. I mean, I liked Iron Claw, but I love the fact that Iron Claw did really try to like show that stuff, you know, um, not a real sport. <laughs> uh, and, and also I, I wish it got more into the, the, the fakery of wrestling, which I think is the most fascinating thing about wrestling. And yet so few wrestling movies really get into that aspect uh, of it so i'm still waiting for a movie you know about just like how do they do this shit like how do they organize this shit like i'm i still don't know i really want to know you know the one thing i did like about the iron claw and it just popped up to my mind because i was thinking do they even get into wrestling at all besides having some good wrestling sequences right yeah. there's like a gorgeous shot leading into the sport of i think it's called mm -hmm. it's like very flashy it's very scorsese it says big yeah. long shot anyways there's a moment where one of the characters, I forget which one, describes that it's a pyramid structure and those who perform the best get chosen to win the next match. Yeah. I feel like that was the best way of explaining that it's still a competition, even though it's 
scripted. Yes. It's obvious and we all kind of knew this, right? And especially for a fan, if you are a fan, you probably knew this more explicitly than others. But I just thought it was like a thank you for explicitly stating it in your film, right? Because mm-hmm. otherwise we're watching this and there's all this drama about like who's going to get chosen to enter the WWE or to win the like belt or whatever. And we're wondering, wait, this is fake. We all know this is fake. We're past that boring like dialectic of like, oh, is there any athleticism here? Like we all understand like there is a lot of training and effort and pain and injuries and all that that goes into the world of wrestling, right? But just something that like bluntly stated, yo, this is like a company and you have to be the best to then get chosen to be the face that wins. And I I love that about that, that one little part I did love about that one. But you brought up some really fascinating stuff. There was a period where it was all the behind the scenes stuff, but like 2000, like I'd say like nine to like 17, I feel like. Yeah. Completely behind the scenes. And I wanted to bring in politics, but then all that doesn't work. Cause like, I was thinking like, wait, maybe we were so cynical during this time period. We didn't really want that optimistic, like Airbud style movie anymore. (laughs) Right. It was like the Trumpian phase, but no, this was like during the height of Obama when things were kind of generally, I think, optimistic in the culture. And I think it has to do a lot with like fantasy football. Like you're saying, I think you're really getting into it. Like this discourse has kind of shifted even in sports. Like we're so about the managerial side of everything. We're so, everything's contract talk. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so much of it is like people staring at screens and, and stuff like that, which is like what we do now, you know? Um, I mean, even Gran, Gran Turismo is basically about, you know, people who stare at screens, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> you too can become one of the people that actually does it, you know, like, cause sports is all about the people that, you know, the people in the arena, right? You know, the, the, the people who do it and we become, I think as, as a culture, we become less and less, like we become more and more removed from the people who do it in the arena because we spend so much of our time on screens and stuff like that. It's like, I'm the most guilty of these people, but you know, I think these films speak to us in a way because that's our access point, you know? Wish fulfillment in Gran Turismo is so there, right? Like this idea vicariously through that character that, hey, I I can't surf or I can't dunk over Shaquille O'Neal, but heck, I can play a video game even if I can't be great at a video game, right? Even if I'm not going to be the greatest esports person. So like there is a possibility I could be a professional racer. And I actually brought that up on our episode on that again and again. I was like, is there really that big of a barrier for this sport because like a lot of these gamers got into the professional world of nascar through this publicity stunt and i i think that that kind of does prove there's some like porosity there. there's some permeability in that sport specifically where it's a lot of like economic barriers and a lot of like you have to have the fortitude to go that fast and risk your life and you have to have some dexterity and some hand-eye coordination and endurance but yeah. For the most part, it's a sport that the layman can develop. Whereas like you have to start in rowing very young. You have to start in all these other things very, very young, right? To be a hockey player, you got to start early. You're not going to just at 28 decide, I'm going to join the NHL and throw on some ice skates as much as Justin Bieber was out there yesterday in the All-Star <laughs> game. Anyways, thanks. We could go on, I think, for this discussion actually for a long, long time. Um, but we'll we'll leave it there. And it's something I think we should explore more, Jordan. It's just like, uh, what is a sports movie today? Like, for sure. right? where's it headed? Where is it headed? Where is it coming from? What are some of its like larger macro uh, trends? Um, thanks so much for coming on, Bilga. Um, please you. tell our listeners who've hung in <laughs> with us for this long discussion where they can uh, find you. 
Oh, uh, well, you know, I, I write for New York Magazine and Vulture. Um, so you, everything I write nowadays, for the most part, is it can be found on vulture.com. Um, I'm on Twitter at, at Bilga Ibiri, B-I-L-G-E-E-B-I-R-I. Um, those are basically the two places to find me. Awesome. Once again, thanks so much for coming on. We had a blast talking oh, about Ferrari and everything else. Thank you so much. And Jordan, uh, where can our listeners... Interact with us. Interact with us on that Google machine. Get on that search bar. Google us at Cinematic Underdogs. Uh, of course, if you listen to us on Spotify, keep listening to us on Spotify or Apple, wherever you wherever you get your podcast, you can find us on there. Uh, we're at Twitter at Cinematic underscore Underdogs. So again, search for those. Uh, let us know what you think of this episode. Give us your thoughts. Uh, chirp me for going back on my opinion about Ferrari from, a, <laughs> from three weeks ago. Uh, let us know what you think about this episode.